Welcome, y'all. My name's Deeg. This is Basement Side Chats. I'm here today with Bobby Stein, the Associate Narrative Director at ArenaNet, the studio working on Guild Wars 2. How's it going, Bobby? It's going, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, could I ask you to, uh, for posterity and for the stream, introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my name is Bobby Stein. I'm the Associate Narrative Director at ArenaNet. So... I uh, help our studio narrative director, who is Tom Abernathy. You know, basically, the two of us uh, run the narrative department. So we're kind of responsible for helping shape and break story uh, for Guild Wars and you know any other projects that we have. And basically, you know, my daily routine is sort of a mix of management stuff, like hiring people, running a mentorship program, trying to uh, you know train and manage and uh, you know, help the folks who we hired to help us write the stories mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and everything from concepting all the way through uh, voiceover recording and all the writing for the game. And we work very closely with, uh, you know, game designers, artists, um, audio uh, designers, QA, you know, basically we're in there with everybody else and it's uh, it's pretty awesome. And I've been there for since 2005. So I just hit my 15 year anniversary. That's exceptional. Yeah. Congratulations. It's kind of wild. I think most people you talk to in the industry, they might only spend a few years in any one given place mm -hmm. and either uh either they have a bad experience and they they kind of burn out and decide to go into another industry, which you know, games it's like anything, right? Like I did a few different things before I got into games, so mm -hmm. those industries were not for me. And it was just kind of funny that I was able to get into games and that I've been there for that long and before, you know, being at ArenaNet, I, I spent a couple of years uh freelancing and contracting at, at other places like Microsoft and Nintendo and mm -hmm. just like freelance writing for some websites and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate to have a home for this long. You know, I think a, a lot of studios either don't last that long or, uh, you know, people decide to move on for whatever reason. So yeah, yeah, it's volatile. And um, I really, uh, that is one of the really standout things that, um, like just going down your, I mean, whenever I look for, to interview someone, I try to get the understanding of them via what's available. Guild Wars Wiki said 15 years. Like that's, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like that needs to be underlined. That That's like a good foundational piece of this conversation, I think. Um, you were talking about the role of associate director a few minutes ago. Um, and uh, in saying that, it sounded like collaboration is really at the soul of the job. Yeah, I think, you know, it's actually true of pretty much any discipline. Um, mm -hmm. It's certainly been my experience at ArenaNet, and my, my guess is that this is true at most places. It's unless you've got a very small team where everybody is sort of able to work independently and not collaborate. Um, I feel like we do our best work, not only just creatively collaborating with our partners, but the The game is usually better off when people are collaborating on ideas. Like, I'll mm -hmm. give you an example. Um, you know, as the narrative department, we're in charge of the story and the characters and, you know, the VO pipeline. And we could write our scripts in isolation and just kind of hand it to people and be like, this is what we want to do. But often what happens is if narrative is not integrated with the design, um, it can feel very 
much like gameplay, then cutscene, then gameplay, then sure. cutscene, and sure. everything is just sort of separated, right? And there are games that do that, and they do it well, and that's fine. But I think for our game, because we're a multiplayer experience, plus we want to try and weave the narrative into the environment and into the gameplay and everything else, mm-hmm. we, we involve the other disciplines in the story um discussions pretty early on so we have a process very early where we call it story breaking it's it's a technique that's used in like television and film and basically you get a bunch of people in a room and you talk at a high level big beats you know what you kind of want the story to look like from beginning to end just in you know start here here's a midpoint and here's the end right uh-huh. and from starting with those broad stroke ideas you can start to drill down into who the characters are and what their arcs through are throughout the plot and um What's wonderful about doing it in a room with a bunch of people uh, is the ideas are flying back and forth, and a lot of times the best ideas will come from pretty much anybody, right? Sure. Um, and you have to manage that process when there's a big room of creatives and people are really, you know, getting into it. Uh, you know, not every idea is going to make sense or, or work, mm-hmm. but you want to have that free-flowing uh, kind of environment and what we like to do is we have a few designers in our team who are really passionate about the story in our game. You know, they know the story and the lore and they know the characters. Mm-hmm. They're they're the experts of gameplay. And because they're the ones who will be building these encounters and helping present the story, mm-hmm. um, we love having them involved in it you know, because they'll make suggestions on how we can tell the story within the uh, gameplay you know, how we can pace moments for certain things to happen. They might have a really cool idea mm-hmm. that leans on game mechanics, but for a narrative purpose, or, you know, they might also tell us, hey, you know, that's a really neat story idea, but it actually doesn't work with the technology that we have, right? Yeah. So yeah. they keep us honest in a lot of ways, and we just love having them involved because when it comes to actually building that stuff, uh, we're working hand in hand. hand, in hand. So uh, I-, I wouldn't want to do it any other way. It's certainly not for the kind of game that we make. Um, it's probably one of the most rewarding parts of the job because not only do you get to meet a lot of people, but you get to learn enough about what they do uh, enough to have, I think, a healthy respect. You know, if I'm in a room working with a designer or an artist or an audio, uh, you know, engineer, you start to learn what's important to them for their craft. Yeah. Uh, so that when they're going to be talking about ideas or things that they want to do or ways that they would want to build something. Um, you start to realize what's important to them um, and vice versa. They learn what's important to you and your craft, right? And I think once you build up that mutual respect, you can really create wonderful things. I think in mm-hmm. a way that if if we just had somebody who was, you know, the, the game director or a showrunner, you know, to use a TV term, mm-hmm. um, at the top who was just kind of dictating work, yeah, you can get work done and, and certainly... Uh, you'll you'll get something that might be a, a single person's vision, but I think when you're collaborating like this and kind of relying on the expertise of a bunch of different different uh, people in different disciplines, you can usually come out with something that's a bit stronger. Okay, makes sense. Um, the idea of the the writers' room that you describe is pretty is pretty awesome sounding. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in one of those conversations. We've talked about maybe. Uh, giving people a peek into the process. Um, we talked about, you know, beh- behind the scenes stuff, you know, how, how would we do that? Um, mm-hmm. I think if you can show it naturally, 
that'd be great. You know, if it's just a sort of staged mock, like here, here's how we do that. You know, it could look really goofy. So yeah, yeah. Um, it is actually a thing that we do that when we're interviewing candidates for the team, we actually have them come in and do a, a mock story breaking session. And it's also something that I think we're going to start doing in the mentorship program. But um, I think for newer people who maybe haven't worked in TV or other games where this has been a thing that they've uh, done, it's really educational. Um, but I think, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. So yeah, I think if, if there were a way that we could just show our process and I would love to hear from other, you know, studios or developers or just see it in a, in a television sense, there was a, a series. I don't remember what it was on. It was like Netflix or HBO or Amazon or something like it was about basically the writer's room and mm -hmm. they had a few episodes where they kind of showed you what that dynamic looked like you know they'd have the showrunner in there and the staff writers and the story editor and it, it, it's really interesting um and i think a lot of it is you're talking about getting a bunch of human beings in a room who have kind of different skill sets uh kind of working a problem together yeah and certainly someone is going to be in charge of kind of shepherding the discussion to make sure that it, it's not just a bunch of people laughing and making jokes and, you know, spinning the wheels, mm -hmm. uh, you know, trying to keep the whole group on task and to come up with ideas that you put on a board that show, you know, the different acts. And, you know, there's, I think getting a bunch of people in a room and with the goal of trying to shape a structure of something start to finish that is specific enough that it feels like its own story, but generic enough or general enough that when you turn it over to the writers and designers and artists who are going to be working on it, mm -hmm. then it gives them enough room to where they can interpret that and kind of bring their A game. Sure. Uh, you don't want to well. micromanage it from the top. No, I, I've worked with people who do do that. And okay, uh, <laughs> you know, if you let the team know that that's what the, um, the marching orders are going to be then sure you mm -hmm. can get people on board and then you have to earn that trust so that whoever is giving those uh the orders or the direction you know uh it, it's taken in good faith right um mm -hmm. but you know i think we, we try to leave enough room for people to uh add their creative touch to it to where it's not just uh, very top down sure but i know i know plenty of studios where it's a very top down thing um a small group of people will get together in a room and they will kind of architect the whole thing and then just be like, okay, here's what you're doing. Um, and for them, it works. I mean, I'm not knocking uh, their process. It obviously works for them, but ours is different. Sure. Yeah. I spoke with um, principal artist at rogue planet games, a studio that works on a game called planet side about yep. um, his experience doing game development. He's worked on some old MMOs, like he worked on uh, World of Warcraft. Um, he contributed to Free Realms and a few other games like that. And he did, talked about the difference between like an open-ended game design process or game development process versus like a, a top-down um, kind of like... Um, it makes me think of like, like like the great man theory of history, that, you know, history is moved by great people doing these things. And it's kind of like a great man theory of game development. Um, I think he... He he pinned Chris Metzen for World of Warcraft, you know, kind of famously, and um, he was talking a little bit about the, the perils of open-ended uh, development and how, like the um, the EverQuest sequels, never really came to be because of you that can spin process. your wheels for a long time if you don't have somebody who's keeping the team honest about making that progress. I've right. I've seen it, um, and certainly I think 
you know, you want to have key people in there who are empowered to make decisions to make sure that the the process moves along. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes on creative teams, you can see a little bit of um, creative paralysis. You'll get mm -hmm. a bunch of people in a room who have great ideas and they're great at throwing ideas up on the board. But when it comes to making decisions or taking those ideas and shaping it into something coherent, it, it becomes a bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. projects can, you know, linger in that phase for a long time. And I, I do think that it's important. Um, you know, I, I think the one issue I might have with, you know, the great man theory or whatever it's called, uh -huh. right? Or the great, the great, uh, it's my name for it. Take it or leave it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've actually heard, I've heard that. Right. So, okay. but like the idea that there is this clear leader or face of, of the project. Right. And I think, you know, if you look at the game industry, you have, you know, people who I think from the outside might be looked at as auteurs or, or you know, people who are the, the, the creative center of a project. But I mean, I would be interested in talking to people on that team to find out exactly what that was like. Uh -huh. Like, uh, did that person, were they the sign off uh, gate for every single thing that went through or did they kind of trust their team and just set high level goals and then they would, re you know what I mean? Right. Um, and to attribute the success of a project to one person, I think is also disingenuous of all the other people who worked on it. Because yeah, totally. these teams could be three, four, five hundred people, a thousand people, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and make no mistake, you know, I think good leadership can really help a project as well as sink it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the one thing that kind of turns me off about that concept is just, it sort of ignores the, the, specific contributions of people who probably had a really big hand in shaping it, but you would never know their name. Right. Because they're one of, you know, hundreds in the credits list, which half the time games don't even ship with credits. So sure. Which is another, you know, topic altogether. But hmm. game shipping with credits is not something I've ever given any thought to. How how um, is that a I, topic? Well, in film, uh it's been a while since I worked in film, but I uh -huh. under at least I believe I don't think I've ever watched a film that didn't have credits. And I think some of that has to do with um, like regulations or, you know, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I know like when I worked in and around film, there were unions that kind of owned a portion of filmmaking, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I did lighting and grip. So there was, you know, the, the union that would, you know, they, <laughs> you know, these people would handle the sandbags and these other people would handle the lights and the electricity. Right. Yeah. So if yeah. I was working as a, uh, a set electrician, I would be running cable and powering mm -hmm. on lights and pointing them at people. Right. And then if, you know, so everybody had their special job. And mm -hmm. if you're a camera operator, you don't touch the lights, not your department. You know, the people who touch the lights are in this union and everybody's got, you know, a very defined job. And I believe. Uh, sounds a little territorial. Uh, well, it is, and in a way, it's good and bad, right? And uh -huh. and I'm not gonna, you know, editorialize on that whole thing. You know, I worked in film long enough to see some of this stuff, but not long enough to really have um, something profound to say about okay. it, other than wow, that that's a really it's different. <laughs> that's a thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I believe the reason that film has credits are because there is some sort of agreement whether it's a legal thing or it's just mm -hmm. I, I don't know what it is but games don't really have that um mm -hmm. so you can play a game and there might not be credits in it and you might play a game and there are and mm -hmm. you know it's just uh 
you know, I think depending on what you're playing and when you're playing it, yeah. you know, may or may not. The, the whole reason that I bring it up isn't to make much of a statement other than uh, a lot of times you wouldn't know who worked on something unless you either looked in the credits or you right. went on to like IMDb and hopefully somebody uploaded them or mm-hmm. Moby Games or something like that might have uh, them listed there. Or it's just if you're looking at somebody's LinkedIn profile, maybe they put the thing that they worked on it, right? But yeah. Oftentimes the people in the trenches go unnoticed and it's, you know, if they like working in, um, in sort of obscurity because they really care about the craft, that's wonderful. But if they want to be acknowledged for their contributions and they can't, or it's very difficult, that's, that's a shame, I think. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. You bring that up. Um, I have a joke I feel like I have to say, which is with the number of names I see after movie credits, it must be against the law to not include some names. Otherwise, <laughs> why why on earth would they do that to me? Especially when they put scenes after the credits. Uh, oh, yeah. That, that's how they get you to stay. <laughs> Maybe that's going to be uh, part of the bylaws in the future. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I couldn't tell you, man. But uh, I mean, it's everything, right? Like it'll 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 break it down by department and it has, a, you know, a ton of names. Um, it's funny too, like whenever I watch an animated film, I always stay to watch the voiceover cast because yeah. there's a chance I may have, you know, worked with, with some of those actors because, you know, they did work for us on Guild Wars or whatever. And uh-huh. it, it's, it's hilarious. Cause I'll be watching like a Disney, Disney movie. And then all of a sudden I'll recognize a few names like, Oh, they see they, they were in that, you know, that was That's pretty cool. cool. Right. Um, or, think- you know, an anime or, or something. Right. I'm like, Oh God, I, yeah, I could have my eyes closed and could tell you when Crispin Freeman is uh, uh-huh. opening his mouth because he has a very distinct voice. So I haven't I haven't worked with him in a while, but yeah, he has a very recognizable voice. Uh-huh. But like Steve Bloom, yeah, you have to try a little harder because like he, he and Fred Tatasciore and, and a more chimeric. Just, yeah, exactly. They they yeah. can do so many voices that you can't even keep track. So, but the, then when you see them in the in the credits, you're like, oh, there's you know Julie or you know, uh, mm-hmm. whoever, right? So it, it's pretty neat, but... It's sorry, one of those, we're, like, it's we're a small world after all kinds of feelings. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it, it's kind of amazing because maybe if you don't think about it, it's just every movie sort of seems like its own entity. You don't think about the people behind it. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing about games, right? Like you could find out uh, from talking to somebody that uh, you meet them and then they start telling you about this game they worked on like from 20 years ago. Uh, and I'm like, oh my God, I remember playing that on my my uh my pentium 2 or uh-huh. whatever or my my original xbox and then all of a sudden you're like wow that that must have been a time you know and the team was like 30 people instead of 300 you know yeah are you at all nostalgic for times when game studios were that size uh am i nostalgic i mean well you've the, been around the, well i mean when i joined arena net uh i think i was employee number 70 right so okay. it wasn't small was that but it small. wasn't big. i get it i get yeah it, it um you know because i think when people say small they think of like two-person indie team sure you know with a couple of outsourced folks who like did the music or yeah. did game i've been know, playing lately called valheim i'm not sure if you've heard of it everybody's talking about it. i've i've heard of it i have not read rid- anything or watched anything but it seems to be like really popular it's ridiculously good i'm a little addicted to it at the moment um, nice. But it's made like like a handful of people, and they have like oh, five, wonderful. like half a million concurrent players on Steam at the moment. <laughs> uh, it's one, yeah, and I think 
I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I saw it was like every every couple of days for uh, the first week or two of launch, it'd be like they hit the three million mark. Yeah, before, you know, and I was like, wow, that's you know, I, it's really exciting as a developer to see your game take off like that right after launch because. Mm-hmm you know, it's going to stop somewhere and it won't go to like a billion or anything like that. Yeah. Right. But you're like, how high is this going to go? And um, like every time we put something out, you know, whether it's a, like a living world releases, you know, mm-hmm. a very specific thing that doesn't have necessarily the same, uh, you know, splashes like an expansion or like yeah. when we release Guild Wars 2. Right. But when we would release the core game or one of the expansions, you know, we would be at the office and we'd have a, a monitor up and it would show us like concurrency, like real time, you know, we're getting data from the server. Uh-huh. And as soon as it went live, you'd see this gigantic spike and you'd be like, Oh, okay. How many sales is that? You know, or uh-huh. uh, that kind of thing. And it's really exciting because the thing that you've been working on for, you know, two, three, five, like the core game took us five years to make and finally seeing it go live to where people can play it and it's out there uh is wonderful so i can imagine that the people who made valheim are probably giddy that it's doing well i you know again i don't know anything about the studio who made it or Uh whatever but uh one dev to another i think they're probably having a a wild time right now yeah i imagine they're very busy yeah (laughs) it's a is it a live service game or it's like a co-op game or what is um it's a a, uh, what's the word Early access, early access, early oh, access. Okay. And wow. um, it's multiplayer, and they're planning to add on to it. But I don't know if it's intended to have a long-term live service model. I don't get okay. the impression it does. It doesn't feel okay. that way. Yeah, actually, uh, and we were talking about this before. I played the Outriders demo, and yeah. I had I really didn't know anything about it before I went in. I just knew that People Can Fly was the developer, and they had done some Gears of War stuff years ago. And when I played the demo, I was like, this feels a lot like Gears of War Judgment. I don't mm-hmm. know if you played that, but it very much mm-hmm. was like level-based. They're, they have a lot of replayability, so where you can you know, turn up the difficulty and have all these mutators on and stuff. Okay, so like, kind of like arena Structurally speaking, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's kind of an interesting game. You know, uh, I don't think it has a, I mean, maybe it has a PvP component, but I remember playing the co-op campaign and going in and you know playing a mission and then seeing hey if i play it and i turn up the difficulty or i add a mutator you get better rewards right um so seeing it in outriders i was like okay i've played this game before but this is like the new version and it's not a gears of war game but it feels like it right so mechanically there's a lot of similarities but they added this rpg uh like gear uh element to it and you know there's conversations you can have with characters Uh and stuff like that so uh if you like that kind of game which i do it was just kind of neat to play that and go i wonder what uh the devs are thinking right now because when you release a a demo right before the game comes out you Mm -hmm. can it's a scary time because first of all your servers are going to get hammered and you don't know if there's something is going to go wrong Uh Uh, and then the other thing is you start seeing all this feedback and if people like everything, great. But if you start seeing things like this thing's broken or they don't like this, then you're like, oh God, like, is there anything we can do to make correct. it better or yeah. address it? Or yeah, right. And if like a balance thing is usually, uh, I don't want to speak for, you know, the, the skills and balance folks in the industry, but, mm. you know, it, it's one thing to make adjustments to numbers to get things to feel better. It's mm-hmm. a lot different to meaningfully change content or make structural changes to systems 
Right. Because that can be very scary on something that is about to go out. So yeah, uh, I could just imagine that they're they're having a they're having a time too. So yeah, I will. Ha- so is Valheim um, PC only, or is it uh, also console? I or? think it's only on Steam at the moment. I don't okay. know what their intentions are in the future. I wasn't gonna play it because I don't really like that 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 genre of games very much. But a friend of mine uh, kind of convinced me, and I just got it on a whim. And uh, yeah. I don't want to make this all about Valheim, but I could talk about oh, yeah. it. It's it's a very it's a very fun and, and enjoyable game. Um, but we brought it up because we were talking about like the size yeah. of studios, and I, oh, I, yeah. I asked you a very silly question about being nostalgic about a small oh, studio. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and thank I you know for that, getting me back on track. Yeah, <laughs> that's my job. So and I know that you followed a track from being a guy who was trading. You were a day trader. And then no. you were, I, I picked so, up pieces from, from different places. From like, Maybe like, you can like stitch the narrative yeah. together for me. Your yeah, own narrative. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I went to school uh, for film and television, right? So mm-hmm. I think at the time I was thinking about working in that industry, you know, whether I, I didn't really honestly give it too much thought. I was like, oh, I like watching movies and TV. So maybe I'll do this. Sure. Right. Um, so I learned a lot about, using cameras, doing lighting, um, doing some editing. But this is back in the day when like editing is you would take film and put it on a, a flatbed machine uh-huh. and uh-huh. cut it with, you know, like really old school stuff. Right. Um, you know, I, I have actually a 16 uh, millimeter camera down in the basement that I've actually never run. Like I've never shot film on it. Uh-huh. Stupid. Uh, <laughs> but it's cool. You know, it's a it's an Rolex, I think. Yeah. I've got like super eight cameras and stuff. Nice. Um, super eight is wild too because you would just put the cartridge in and shoot it and it had uh the one i had had a uh microphone on it so you could actually record synchronized sound directly to a magnetic strip that was Mm -hmm. part of the film um you know this i guess like in the days before camcorders when that was a thing anyway um long story short yeah i went to school for film uh and kind of dabbled in that um while i was in school so Uh i would uh you know, I would work as a, there was a word for it. It's not contractor. It's maybe freelancer. I don't know. Basically I would work like a day rate on a, a shoot. Um, and basically, you know, hang a light up or, you know, uh-huh. move sandbags around or point a camera, whatever. Technical um, stuff. Yeah. Just basically working on set. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I had been writing my entire life just on my own, you know, I would write short stories and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, but I never, and I've been playing video games ever since I was a little kid. Right. Uh, uh-huh. Um, I don't know if you can probably see this, but other folks can't. Uh, I got my Commodore 64 shirt. There it is. Um, when I was a when I was a wee lad, um, you know, used to l- learn basic programming, and I used to type in programs in in like uh, machine language, and so I didn't understand any of it. It was just like you know, looking at a book and typing this in just to get free sure. games. Sure. <laughs> so I'm uh, copy paste. Yeah, exactly. In the days before the internet. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, long story short, I love video games as a kid. When I was really young, I actually wanted to work in games, but it was like, I want to make games for the Atari, you know, because that's how young I was. Um, And then as a teenager, I kind of forgot about it and did other things, went to film school. And I think for the first uh, year or two out of college, that's what I did. I worked on set on like TV commercials and and um mm-hmm. you know tv shows and stuff like that and uh 
Yeah, I. Uh, I thought that was the direction of my life, and I sort of had it planned out. Oh, I'm gonna, you know, do this for a while, and then I, I realized that where I was at, I was I couldn't make enough money to move out of my parents' house. Oh, <laughs> that was the motivator. I want to move out of my know. parents' house. Well, you know, and granted, like I wasn't doing, uh, you know, uh super lucrative work, you know, work, you know, carrying sandbags around and pointing lights, at least at the level I was doing, it was not uh, necessarily um, making me wealthy or anything. Okay. So um, I had just broken up with a girlfriend of mine at the time, and I wanted financial independence, so I could just kind of get out and be on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a friend of mine who was working at an investment company said, hey, listen, um, we got all these job openings for entry level people. Uh, and I did not go to school for finance. So I, I was like, I don't, how, how would I even get a job there? Even if I know somebody, what, why would you guys give me a job? Uh-huh. And he just said, oh man, all you got to do is, you know, I'll put in a good word for you. So I, I read, um, investing for dummies because I wanted to learn how to manage my own money. Uh-huh. And, you know, I don't like, <laughs> I don't like endorse the book as like, Hey, buy this book. You know, I don't make any money off it, but I read it and it taught me a lot about what to do with my money. Uh-huh. Just by reading that book, I could answer all the basic questions that the people doing the interviewing uh-huh. threw at me. So they're like, you know, do you know what a mutual fund is? And it was so funny that, you know, somebody <laughs> would ask a really basic question, but, you know, I think your average person probably doesn't. But I just said, oh, yeah, you know, and I explained it to him. He was like, oh, OK. Uh, so anyway, long story short, uh, bad breakup, wanting to move uh, out of my parents' house yeah. and be financially independent. I just took a job that I could, uh, that would make me some more money to get out. And I was like, all right, this film thing, I'm I'm going to take a break from it. And that's what I did. So I ended up uh, mm-hmm. working in Manhattan for about five years at a couple of different companies. Um, so I was on a trading floor, um, not at the like New York exchange, but the way that a lot of that stuff works is, you know, you've got the New York exchange and the American exchange. And I think the mercantile exchange, like there's a few like trading floors in downtown Manhattan. Okay. Uh, but then, uh, yeah. But then a lot of the financial companies that are around there, they'll have their own trading floors at their building and they're kind of electronically sending their orders down. Okay. Uh, so, and this was right around the, um, you know, right near the turn of the century. Right. So yeah. um, anyway, it was pretty wild. Like, I never had any aspirations to work in that industry, but I somehow uh, managed to fake my way in, and and I, I was working there for a few years. Got you out of your parents' wild, house. It's worth yeah, something. I got out of my parents' house. I you know moved into an apartment. I was living in Hoboken for a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, met somebody else, settled down for a little bit. You know that kind of thing. And then after doing that, uh, you know, so I was. At uh, I was at a company that was about two blocks away from the trade center, and I was there when all that stuff went down. And oh it was, as you can imagine, it was a nightmare. Um, it was terrible. Like the things that you saw and heard being two blocks away, it was just I terrible. I can't even imagine. It's well, I mean, if you've seen the the news footage, right, yes. or any of the documentaries, I mean, that's that's what it was like. Um, and I remember I was at my desk. And you could hear all the calamity out in the street, and you know, they didn't. The people who were managing the the company that I was at, you know, uh-huh. they came on the loudspeaker and they're like, "Nobody leave," because they didn't want you to go outside and, you know, get Increase hurt. Increase the panic, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, right. And but if you looked out on the street, people were running around, and um, you know the the streets were shut off. There were paramedics there. It was all this noise, and you know uh, it was awful. But I remember when um, the first tower fell like the entire building just started rumbling and shaking, right? I'm at my desk and I'm like, what is going on? And and I remember I looked, I went over to the window and I like put my head against it and I could kind of look up the street and you could see the building collapsing on itself. And then it just created this tidal wave that started shooting down the street. Oh my God. And everybody started running and there was a cloud that was rolling and it looked like a like a tidal wave and there's just chunks of debris and glass and everybody's screaming. It was, it was horrible. Um, Sounds like hell. It was awful, dude. And, and so that was terrible. Cause I'm like, what just happened? Who got yeah. hurt or worse? Right. And seeing this, this debris tidal wave come down the street, it just swallowed people up. You would see them running and then it would just envelop <sighs> them and it would just keep going. Right. And uh, after that, like, made its way two blocks up to where I was, you know, I, I saw it coming. I was like, all right, I got to get away from the window because I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and then you would just see this smoke just cover the window and, you know, the whole room would get dark, right? And it was really loud. And then it got really eerily quiet, like then you couldn't hear anything. And uh-huh. then the smoke kind of crept up to the window. And because a lot of the buildings in Manhattan are old, you know, mm-hmm. the weather stripping around the windows is yeah. pretty bad. And like the smoke started actually creeping in through the, through the windows. Uh-huh. So even though these windows did not open, they were not sealed very well. And then the smoke started coming in. I'm like, Oh God, like this is yeah creepy. And after that, then you could start to hear all the, like sirens and the um the the fire rescue people had these beacons on them that i think i don't know how they work but all i know is you could start to hear these beacons all go off okay because that would be the thing that they would use to like locate each locate other each other yeah with the smoke it was just yeah sorry i i, I probably have to stop talking about it because it's it's pretty i understand emotional <laughs> it's that's remarkable um, it, to live through something like that yeah well it you know it was terrible man it was really wild um you know uh at some point later i'll just finish the story and then we'll move on but at you know a couple hours later i think i was i was there from like 7 a.m. and then the first plane hit at like 8:15 or something like that, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. and then like another 15 or 30 minutes later, and I was basically, you know, we were all in the building until about noon, right? So all that stuff had happened, and everybody was starting to evacuate, and finally they said, okay, you guys, you know, you can all leave. Mm-hmm. So we uh, grabbed. Um, I think I took a shirt like that I had with me, or like a a jacket or something. And I just wet, I had, I remember reading somewhere or watching a show somewhere that said, if you wet, um, a fabric, like mm-hmm. a, a shirt or something, it can filter out smoke. Yeah. Right. So if you're in a burning building and you wet like a shirt and rub, you know, put it over your head or your face, it can protect you. So, yeah. 
you know, I and other people did that. And then we went out in the street and it was just like, you know, camera crews running around, fire rescue running around. And, and yeah. we made our way uh, up, I think, to like 40th Street or something like that. And that, <laughs> that's where basically because the um, the ferries and like the train station was just gone. It had caved in. Nobody could get in or out. Uh, but the ferries to New Jersey were still operating, but they couldn't dock over at the trade center because that was all just you know yeah. a disaster scene so uh they started redirecting like every ferry that they had in the area started coming and they were just picking up people by the boatload uh didn't matter if you had a ticket they were like just get on and get out of here so wow. um, thousands of people the line was like a mile long and you know you'd get on and people would be showing up and they'd be you know covered in rubble they'd be cut you know like uh it looked it looked like somebody took like talcum powder and just like threw it on their face because like they were just, just like caked. covered in in like debris and you know dust and uh like you know blood you know people would have cuts on them and it was just it was it was nightmarish you know and thankfully anybody who was there was able to get up and walk around and you know you would certainly see people helping other people so that was actually you know if, if there's anything positive to take from it is you know, in in the face of tragedy, you will see people actually do very kind things yeah. for each other. Um, yeah. And uh, anyway, we got on the boat and you know went over to to Hoboken, and they basically said, "Hey, anybody who was within you know X blocks of the trade center, go on this line, and everybody else go on that line." And I was mm -hmm. like, "Well, I was two blocks away, so I'm in that zone." And basically, they had a uh, like a shower tent set up. Mm -hmm. So you would just stand in a group with a bunch of people and then the fire department would just hose you down. Like, okay. cause they said, listen, they, they were saying that they, they weren't sure, you know, if the planes had any, you know, chemicals on them or if it was just the fuel or what, like nobody really yeah. knew exactly what happened. So they were just, I think to be safe, they a were basic safety thing, washing people down. So then, you know, uh, I was soaking wet and then, you know, me and a whole, a whole bunch of other people who were in that group, we just kind of walked away and um you know, my phone had died at that point because the, here was the other thing the communications for the whole south of manhattan had been knocked out you know there was a television switching station so that you know that had failed <laughs> and um a lot of calls were trying to be routed through l less equipment um and your cell phone will when it you turn it on it tries to connect to a tower yeah. but if it can't it just keeps pinging and looking for at least, you know, some, some, I'm sure someone in, in the comments will correct me if I'm wrong here, but <laughs> to my understanding, if your phone can't grab a tower, it just keeps trying and it'll sure. actually wear the battery down faster. Yeah, it's a lot of so energy. My, my, my phone was dead. You know, I, I was like soaking wet and miserable. I was, you know, with a whole bunch of other people who were all just trying to like, mm -hmm. you know, take care of each other or whatever. And I remember the first thing I did is I, I was walking uh, toward my, actually I was walking toward my sister's place. And uh, I ran into like the wife of the drummer in the band that I was playing in at the time. And she goes, you know, Dave's at home, go on over there, take a load off. And I said, all right. And the first thing I did is I walked to the liquor store, bought a bottle <laughs> of bourbon and then just went over there and, you know, proceeded to, you know, uh, drink. And I don't drink anymore, but at the time I did. And that was a day of heavy drinking as you yeah. can imagine. But uh, sorry, I went on a wicked tangent. My apologies. Um, That's a yeah, great. Yeah, I worked one. on Wall Street, but okay. uh, after that, I was a lot less uh, excited about going to work, uh, and I ended up working there. That was September two thousand one, and I was there until I think 
early 2003. Okay. Um, and I just, you know, I, I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And I'm like, life's short. I should do something else. Okay. Uh, and I got it in my head that, hey, I like video games. I like being creative. Maybe there's something I can do here. I talked to a friend of a friend who said, hey, uh, you know, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. I'm not a programmer. I'm not an artist. What can I, you know, what, what place is there for me? And he just said, well, you know, play a lot of games and, you know, think about them and write about them and, you know, maybe you'll figure it out. And that's what I did, you know, on mm -hmm. a freelance basis. And I think after a while, I was like, well, I mean, you know, I did a lot of writing uh, in school and, uh, you know, I worked in television. So maybe, maybe there's something here. And yeah. uh, eventually, uh, you know, I quit Wall Street, kind of bummed around uh, for a few months and then, uh, you know, moved out to uh seattle and and within like a week or two of being here i ended up getting my first contract gig and you know i've been in the industry officially as someone who's not just uh like a freelancer ever since then so nice sorry that was a really long story that's okay that's a... storytelling is one of the uh things that you're known for <laughs> you're the guy who won't <laughs> shut up <laughs> oh there's a certain art and virtue to that i think and that's uh that experience you shared is uh it's it's hard to put a word to it. it. It's quite an outlier. It's quite remarkable. Um, yeah. And um, so you came out to Seattle, started working in games. I I heard you share an anecdote on a uh, guild chat about how your first ta thing you were tasked with um, when, when working with ArenaNet was the faction strategy guide. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I first moved out here my uh like contract work was at microsoft games they were called microsoft game studios at the time but okay. now they're just called xbox studios but i was working on the the publishing side doing content for like xbox.com mm -hmm. you know you know back back in the day actually you had to use a pseudonym so like nobody actually knew a handle who wrote for it yeah exactly right yeah so um you know, I wrote some stuff for them, and usually it was like strategy stuff for a game that was on Xbox, right? The o the OG Xbox. Uh, after that contract ended, I went over to Nintendo for a bit and was writing strategy stuff for them, right? So I'd mm -hmm. done, you know, I'd worked on a Pokemon strategy guide, or I'd worked on a, you know, a Fire Emblem strategy guide, or, or writing articles for Nintendo Power or whatever, right? So I'd, even though I never sought out to do that, it was just sort of the work that was in front of me, so I learned how to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I got to ArenaNet, what they needed was somebody to write the strategy guide for factions, uh -huh. which was, you know, a couple of months in development at the time. And I was like, well, you know, uh, it might be a cool opportunity and hopefully I'll go there and then I'll figure out what I want to do. Maybe I'll get a chance to work on the game or something like that. Okay. Uh, okay. And, like, and I think I was there like maybe a month maybe two months and they were like, someone had left and they're like, we need somebody to write this mission or something like that. And I'm like, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the next thing I know I'm in meetings with, with designers and we're talking about like what's going on in the, in the story and, and what do we want to do in the side quest and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It was a real trip. Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of got thrown into it and that was, you know, a, a very different game than Guild Wars two is right. But it was sort of mm -hmm. my first foray into, uh, writing, uh, you know, content for, uh the game and after the strategy guide came out like we decided not to really do any of that stuff in-house anymore yeah and it's just you know writing for the game full-time and 
uh, I think about two years after I got there, um, you know, I became uh, lead and then I did the lead thing for like almost 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, various games. And, you know, for me, it was mostly managing a team of people who were doing a lot of this work and, okay. and certainly you know, helping guide the process. But, you know, most of the writing was done by them and I was sort of making sure they were, um, you know, they knew what to write, what the standards were, you know, I'd review their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I wasn't doing as much writing at that point. Sure. Here and there I would do stuff, but, you know, it just so you it moved wasn't from like a, a contributor role into someone who is helping guide the overall process and make sure that standards and yeah. you were able to make something that was realistic for working with the designers and everything like that. Yeah, and it was really important to me to make sure that the relationship between narrative and design was a, a really strong one. Um, you know, you hear horror stories, I think, from both disciplines of, uh, you know, maybe a writer would be difficult to work with or a designer uh-huh. might be difficult to work with, right? And to me, it was so important that if you want to tell a good story in the context of a game, that the people should be on the same page and collaborating together. So I tried really hard to uh, make sure that those relationships and collaborations were strong. So that was sort of the focus. Um, and we had actually for Guild Wars 2, we didn't really have a, a VO pipeline for Guild Wars 1. It was very like, I remember talking about this uh, like years and years ago. So Guild Wars 1, you would play it and there wasn't a ton of spoken dialogue. There just might be in the uh, the cinematics, in, you know, bookending the missions or whatever. Right. Uh, or there might be a pre-rendered cinematic, you know, when you fire up the game but we're talking a couple of hundred lines of dialogue max yeah and compared to guild wars we, 2 not the same word oh yeah. it's night and day yeah i mean yeah, yeah. so when we started talking about what we wanted to do with guild wars 2 the 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 concept was like well what how do we want to make this game feel different right mm-hmm. well number one we went from being a you know a, a cooperative game that's just you know instance based you'd go out with your party and the world is a copy for you and that kind of thing right to something that's more like a traditional MMO, you know, obviously you've got your towns with, you know, hundreds of people in them, but, but then when you go out into the world, there's hundreds of people hanging out. Right. Um, Right. And, you know, I, I think what had come off of playing GTA four at that point, and I was really enamored with the way that um, Liberty city just felt very fleshed out. You drive around, you hear people talking and there was yeah. always like a lot of activity going on, a lot of yeah. ambient dialogue and it just everything was very immersive. Right. And yeah. I was like, man, wouldn't it be great if we could do something like that, but in a, in a co-op RPG. Uh-huh. Um, and obviously, you know, Guild Wars 2 is a very different game, but at the same time, I wanted to take things that I think would make being in a, in immersive world feel really unique. Right. Um, Guild Wars is a fantasy game, and certainly we we borrow from standard tropes. But what I think we've also tried to do things that make it feel uniquely Guild Wars, right? And, what are some of those things? Uh, oh man, you got it. You had to ask that one, right? Uh, <laughs> well, I, well, all right. <laughs> I can suggest a couple, and you, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. I mean, sure. Uh, like one of the things that strikes me is just all all the drive-by dialogue, like you're mentioning. Yeah, you're playing uh, and you're hearing stuff at the same time, rather than being the back and forth. Yeah, I mean that actually. I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that because that was. <laughs> I'd rather talk about that than all right uh, <laughs> other topics. Let's do but, it. Um. Yeah. So, 
I think one of the things I, I think the development team sort of prides itself on is is making it feel immersive. Like every once in a while, I'll go on to you know Reddit or Twitter or the the Guild Wars forums or whatever, mm-hmm. and people will talk about their first time walking around uh, when they hear a lot of the ambient dialogue in the scenes. And some of it is you know directly relevant to what's going on thematically in the story, but some of uh-huh. it is just meant to be slice of life. You know, this tells us something about the people who live here, or it might just be a funny little side story, right? Yeah, that that yeah. may or may not actually connect anything, but the whole idea is to make you feel like you're in a place with yeah. real people, right? Or things are happening without you causing them. Yeah, and hearing people talk about the game affectionately because that is a, an element that they like of it, uh-huh. it warms my heart. Um, you know, obviously we we worked really hard writing the content, but the designers I know had to script all that stuff, yeah. you know, put the characters on a path and have them on a, on a schedule and, you know, make sure they're calling the right animations. And, you know, we had to work with a lot of different people to make it feel like that. And it was sort of funny, like we would write the scenes and kind of communicate to the designers, here's kind of like what we're we're hoping we can do. And then they would kind of go off and do it in the way that they knew how or the way that they felt was best. So obviously it would it would change a little over time. Um, and that was with uh, the first generation, I guess you could say, of our dialogue system. Okay. The one that shipped with the game when we launched it, which is... Oh, with the side-by-sides? Uh, I mean, that we had that in it, but I'm just talking about when oh. you're walking in the world yeah. and there's ambient dialogue happening. Um, that was actually a system that was originally built for the game that... Like one way to look at it is uh, the way that the game were and uh, and I'm going to butcher this and I'm sure there's going to be like a, a client server programmer who's going to want to murder me for like getting the facts <laughs> wrong. But some Asterisk. of the way that <laughs> yeah right some of the way that that stuff is managed is by the server right you know the server is saying okay put the people here um, have them do this and that and everybody who's connected to the game can see it right and there's yeah maybe a little bit of latency, but everybody should see and hear mostly the same exact thing with maybe a little bit of yeah slight delay, right? But it's it's kind of magic the way that it happens because, you know what, you can always kind of see behind the curtain if you're ever playing like a co-op or a multiplayer game, mm-hmm. do it in the same room as somebody else who is connected and then look over periodically to see is everybody standing in the same exact spot? Is everything look exactly the same? Or are there a couple of details that are... right? Or is, a it, little or, different. or is it magicked up on the client side to look like there is a shared world? Exactly, right? Yeah. So, um, again, I think if you ever want to get into that topic, definitely get uh, like a server programmer or somebody who who really knows that world. Um, That's a good but one. all this is to say, the the original way that we had our dialogue system built was that a lot of that stuff was more managed, I, I believe, on the server side. So the the it would trigger the dialogue, but it wouldn't sound... Like the timing was very rigid. Uh-huh. Line would play, then the next line would play, and then when that was done, then the next line would play, and it would actually time the intervals based on the longest file length. This is okay. probably too much about the, how the sausage is made, but basically, no, what would happen is um, our game is played in multiple languages, so we, mm-hmm. we localize the dialogue and all the writing in a variety of languages, right? And because uh, something might be recorded, like translated and then recorded in another language. Unless we instruct the um, recording studio to match the exact line length of how long it takes to say this thing, right? Uh, it'll be a little different. It might be a little longer, a little shorter, or way longer, right? Yeah. Uh, 
So the way that the game would work, though, is it would just look at whatever the longest line that we got was, and then it would time it so that uh, mm -hmm. it would space the lines out. And sometimes there was just more of a Gaps. gap than, yeah. than felt natural, right? You'd get the dialogue, but it would certainly not feel organic, right? Mm -hmm. um, fast forward a couple of years, you know, and we also had those side-by-side -side mm -hmm. cinematics, which you know, I know why games use them. And, and actually, I think for what it was, ours were fine. You know, we mm -hmm. could have higher res models and, and we could have custom animations and we could have lip sync. And like, there was a lot of things in it that were really good. Yeah. But I think, you know, the, the trade-off of doing that is it pulls you out of the game. You kind of have to watch it and either, you know, you have to watch it to the end because it's unskippable or you can skip through it, but then you kind of end up missing out the whole point, right? Uh, yeah. Whether it's plot or dramatic moment between two characters or whatever. Right. And when our audio programmer at the time said, hey, listen, I want to change the system. Oh, it's like, so I'll give you an example. Okay. When two characters in the core game talk to each other in the open world, mm -hmm. you'll notice that 99% of the time they're not moving. They're not walking anywhere uh -huh. um, because the way that the system was built for that originally was that the characters would have to stand in place to do their thing. Stand and deliver. And then Got it. Stand and deliver, right? The only thing that you would maybe see once in a while is they would be walking and they would say like one line mm -hmm. and that would be it. Or uh, they could be moving and a scene would have to be sort of stitched together through a lot of like hand scripting and it was just a nightmare, I think, for the designers. Yeah. Anyway, so long story short. Syncing up the, the, the world state with the dialogue was, it was a challenge, it sounds like. Yeah, it just it basically was done in a way that while it was very functional and it made the world feel alive because it, we were just surrounded by mm -hmm. uh, sound, um, the, just the, the, the dramatic uh, tension of a scene, characters were, it you kind of lost it. it. It was almost like they were reciting their lines in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, so at any rate, um, you know, after launch, our audio programmer made some changes and the the scenes would actually be timed independently of each language so that it would just look relative at the time between the line that was playing and then the next one. A little more dynamic. And could, yeah, and you could basically have characters talk over each other. You could have a really long pause if you wanted. You could have them cut each other off. Yeah. You could have them moving and doing things and animating at the same time, but you could actually have like an entire scene or a sequence of scenes stitched together. Way more so it, it just, Yeah, it just allowed us to do a lot more things. And man, as a as a creative, it was so empowering. And the funny thing is it was, I think most people who worked on the game who didn't deal with the dialogue system had no idea that any of these changes went in. Mm -hmm. um, but for, for the designers and for the narrative team, we were, uh, we felt like, you know, a, a gift had been handed down from, from the heavens because it would just allow us a lot more control. We yeah. could even, you know, have characters, you know, turn and face and do special animation at one point we actually had like a lip sync animation pipeline and it was just it gave us a, a finer degree of control over something and uh -huh. you don't really think of mmos of uh, necessarily doing that sort of stuff or not necessarily doing it at the same like fidelity or scale as maybe a big budget um mm -hmm. you know triple a action game right but that was certainly it allowed us to do more of those things that we liked experiencing in other games and it mm -hmm. was it felt really great to be able to do that in our game so i think one of the things that i just really love about the game is that we can you know if we're given the time and the resources we can really create an immersive uh environment you know and between 
you know, the art and the lighting and the layout and the design and, and the writing and the voiceover and everything else, like we can do really cool things that might, you know, they're a lot more common nowadays in um, online multiplayer games. But back when Guild Wars 2 yeah. came out, I think it was a little bit more unique. And uh, it's it was a real... It was a real trip to be involved in those systems from the beginning and then, you know, writing with big teams on, uh, you know, making content for that. It was just I I still kind of think back uh, about how lucky I was to get in on that project at the very beginning and uh-huh. work with a lot of people to help shape that in, in some form. A gift from the heavens. The Bobby the narrative. <laughs> okay. team. Maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but it was pretty wild. I, I, I was definitely very appreciative. I can relate a little bit. Uh, I work in professional services, and sometimes I will get a, a technological gift from the heavens that changes the way that I work. <laughs> Most, I, I'll be honest, it, it's often a curse, not not a blessing. <laughs> but yeah, I can relate to that somewhat. The the tools programmers are your friend. Yes. Uh, I, I can't I can't speak highly enough of uh, really awesome and engaged tools programmers who care about making a thing that. The outside world is never going to see or use, but they'll just see the product that you can make with it. But um, I love it when you're working with somebody who really cares about building this really great thing that makes your life easier. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we actually just had some uh, programmers come back uh, who had 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 left uh, a couple of years back, but now they're they're back on the team and just working with again with them again is just such a it's such a a privilege, you know. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. That's awesome. Yeah. It sounds like you really just value the the human collaboration component of the whole process of making games. Yeah, are you kidding me? Well, I mean, I always here's this is gonna sound like a goofy statement because it'll sound like the uh <laughs> the California Dairy Association where it's like <laughs> happy happy cows make good cheese. <laughs> I don't remember what it is, right? But I always say like happy devs make great games. Yeah, um, yeah, if yeah. you like your work and you work with cool people and you're not fighting against the process or you or the people, right? Mm-hmm. Then you can just be creative and, and do good work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, the studio culture uh, is a thing that I think is important to a lot of people. It's certainly important to me. Mm-hmm. I actually got more involved in, in studio level um, stuff, you know, with the mentorship program and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm helping with the DEI stuff. Um, DEI? I just care. Uh, yeah, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh. It's basically um, what we're trying to do, which is uh, what actually a lot of companies are trying to do. Is just make sure that when we're uh, hiring, that we're being fair and making sure that we're talking to as many you know candidates as we can. We want to mm-hmm. find good talent. We want to make sure that we're getting you know a, a diverse group of people to meet and consider. Mm-hmm. Right. And then um, when it comes to hiring people and keeping them happy at the company, making sure that we're not overworking them, making sure that we're compensating them fairly, you know, because, you know, we work in an environment where there are a lot and you could throw a, a, a snowball or whatever in any direction and you're going to hit any number of high powered studios. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, some of them are way bigger than us. Right. And we need to uh, create an environment where people want to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, compensate them fairly, treat them fairly, you know, uh, listen to what they have to say. If there are problems, make sure that we're addressing those problems. Cause you know, I think all of us have worked at, uh, places, you know, whether in games or elsewhere 
where you might have somebody who's just not a very nice person or, you know, they're not doing their job or this person mm -hmm. said a really awful thing in a crowded room and nobody called them out on it. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, or, you know, your boss didn't do anything about it. Right. So I think we, we just need to do better. And, and it's, it's a, an evolving thing. I mean, I think every, yeah. you know, you're dealing with people, right. Uh, you know, there's a learning process and, uh, you know, you have to hold yourselves accountable to things and you also just have to strive to every day come in, you know, making it a good place. Yeah. I really appreciate what you said, what you're saying about, um, uh, the, um, happy devs make the best milk or something, <laughs> something like that. Make the best games. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, just, yeah. Happy devs make great games. That's <laughs> definitely not what I said. Um, <laughs> And so I, I want to get into um, your what. Um, there are a few questions that I have, and I'm thinking about what order to ask them in. Sure. Yeah. Maybe. Um, maybe what I can do is ask, um, make it a more general question about narrative design. Um, okay. And ask you like what it is you look for in a narrative designer. And then talk so, about the inclusion process after that. Sure. You mean when we're, um, if we have a like a job opening, sort of what we look for? Yeah. Or, 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 or this mentorship program, like what what qualities are you identifying or facilitating, sure. like those kinds of things? Yeah. So let's see. Um, yeah, I think when you're recruiting, you want sort of you have to look at the 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 entirety of of what a person brings right what yeah. the what their skill set is can they do the job and obviously that's you know the most important thing you don't want to hire somebody who's really great to have a beer with but they can't do the work that you need them to right so yeah you know you have to hire somebody who can do the work and knows the craft right so that they're making you stronger as a team um but you also have to bring in somebody who shares your values right uh, you don't want to hire somebody who's really amazing, but a total jerk to work with, you know, mm -hmm. um, and you want to hopefully have people who are really excited about the the project that you're working on. Um, so, I mean, those are some just really high level general things. I mean, I think if you ask anybody who's in, uh, you know, a position to hire, you know, they're going to want somebody who has these uh, aspects about them, right? Skills and um, values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And what we look for specifically in narrative is, um, you know, the first thing that we ask for, right, is a portfolio. We want to see the work that you've written so that we mm -hmm. could evaluate your craft uh, competency, right? We like, well, we pretty much require uh, screenplays or teleplays. A lot of what we're doing is we're writing stories that are being acted out and presented in a visual and audio manner, right? So we want to see scripts that are written to do that. It's not that if we see a, a prose piece, like a short story or an excerpt from a book, that we can't get a sense of a person's writing uh -huh. style, but we like to see something that is written in a format that it is easily translatable. So yeah. they might write a, a spec script for a show that they like or want to maybe work on or just you know put a story together just to showcase their, um, their craft skills. So their thought process, uh, how they actually contribute. Yeah. Or, you know, a game script or, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll get comic samples. But, uh, 
you know, or narrative design docs that come with their um, dialogue script. But anyway, those mm -hmm. are the things that we like to read and we'll read, you know, as many as they send us. Right. And, you know, I've read entire, you know, 120 page screenplays, which, you know, can take a while. Um, but really, I only need to read as far as, you know, by the time you get to the end of an act, right, or at the end of a sequence, you can start to see the decisions, the creative decisions that somebody's making mm -hmm. with their characters, how the characters are interacting, what are they sort of setting up, and where, how are they paying it off later, right? It's just real basic storytelling craft skills. But, you know, you might not see what you're looking for in a lot of samples, right? You might mm -hmm. see some good dialogue, but when you look at the entire story, it's not really going anywhere or it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we want to see, you know, um, a, a real competency in the structure, right. You mm -hmm. know, whether it's a you know, three, four five act, whatever. Um, but also what they're doing with their characters are the, have the characters changed? Uh, have they gone through an arc by the time, you know, the story has resolved, right. Because we care a lot about the characters. Um, and we want uh, be, a character going through, an arc that is relatable to the person who is viewing it, uh -huh. right. Or, or watching it or playing it. Yeah. Um, it can really, uh, someone can connect with the story, right. When, when the characters are going through something that they can empathize with. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough for us just to, you know, see the, um, kind of plot structure that, okay, you've set up something that mechanically resolves, yeah. but we, we want to see how the characters are affected by it. Right. Because, yeah, people people can relate to them um Ancient so beyond that storytelling exactly right um so beyond that uh you know we want to have conversations with them to see what they're like maybe we'll ask them questions about you know our game sometimes but uh also just what games do they play yeah. what do they think about when they're playing them are there any games that had stories that resonated with them or maybe didn't resonate with them and can they tell us why uh -huh. if they were going to change or improve something in the game that we make what would they do you know mm -hmm. so we really want to get an understanding of sort of like we want people who are craft literate in screenwriting but we really also want people who are have that kind of narrative design brain where they're constantly looking at how something was made and how the story is being presented right um, right with within the gameplay uh confines right yeah. Um, so that's really important. Um, and then just really, what would this person be like to work with, right? Yeah. How would they, uh, would they create conflicts with employees? Would they resolve conflicts with employees? You know, are they easy to get along with? What and is so sort of their process? The, yeah. uh, mock writer's room thing you were talking about earlier. It really helps. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, I've, <laughs> I've never noticed, uh, I've never witnessed anybody, uh, fly off the handle in those situations, but I have uh, actually on a couple of occasions, people will kind of say something a little questionable, right? Or someone will make a uh, comment, but they'll ignore that person, but they'll totally listen to this other person. And you're like, why are you picking a favorite in this room of people who you don't know, right? So d huh. are they displaying some sort of bias that is impacting their ability to work with a group of people? Interesting. Um, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, you know, these are all the kind of things that I think you have to uh, look at because when you're inviting somebody into a group and a, a smaller group of a team, but then a larger group of, you know, a project, you know, every person that you add is kind of changing the dynamic right. and you want to constantly, I think, bring in people who challenge you to do better, who bring skills that you maybe don't have kind of yeah. looking at the team as a whole, like who's really, it's almost like putting together a, a rating party, right? You know, you're not going to have 
five or 10 people who all have the same build, mm -hmm. you're going to want build diversity, right? So like when you're building a team, it's kind of the same thing. You know, this person might be really great at doing golden path, but their narrative design sensibilities might not be so strong over here. Yeah, so if we hire this other person other. who is exactly right. So we, we try to build a team of diverse skill sets, but also a diverse perspective. And hopefully what that means is we're able to uh, make a game that, you know, satisfies our fans, but then also can um, hopefully tell stories that go beyond our existing audience and, and go deeper into the world and, you know, bare minimum, put a smile on some people's faces, but maybe get them to think, you know? That's a lovely ideal. I really like that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not saying that like, like it's not something that's realistic. Like, I don't, I don't mean that in like a, Oh, it's an ideal far off. Sense. Oh yeah. You're not, I didn't think you were being dismissive. Yeah. Or anything. Um, no, absolutely not. Um, it sounds like, because yeah, like you hear a lot of stories about in game development, at least as an outsider about like, okay, this game got produced and it's okay or it's great or it's whatever. But then you hear a story about how it was made and it's like, Oh God. Ugh. Yeah, I always, those stories always kind of bum me out where, you know, a game that maybe you really like playing and then when you find out what the body count was to kind of get it out, you know, how yeah. many people they burned through or just There's how stories awful. of stress casualties and, and things yeah, like this. It's, it's like, and you know, I, and, and I was just going to say, to be fair, like in the industries that I've worked in, I kind of saw a pattern where, you know, people would overwork right? Whether, whether the company was overworking them or they were overworking themselves or both, mm -hmm. um, you know, working on wall street was a yeah, bit of a meat imagine. grinder. The, the, the hours and the daily stress, uh, I was working there and somebody had a heart attack on the trading floor. Right. So that's, you, uh, you know, you know, that the stress is high if people are going to actually, uh, have health problems, you know, <laughs> Thank thankfully the, the, the trader did not die, but like, it's scary. I mean, really, you're seeing somebody who you work with uh, who is so, their body is so overtaxed, yeah. right, with stress or hours or whatever, yeah. uh, that that it will fail. Um, yeah. You know, I, 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 you know, television too. In fact, uh, I may get the name wrong, but uh, back when I was working uh, in TV, there was a... I think he was a cameraman. Mm -hmm. I think Brent something or other. Anyway, long story short, a shoot went way over time. So normally after like 10, 12 hours, then you get into overtime territory and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. So like, but it, you, if you don't get the, the shot or the scene done, you want to get it done. But the problem is then people have to work all this overtime to like finish the shot because yeah. they don't want to like break it down and then, you know, go another day. And, you know, yeah. it's, you've got the, the producers are all trying to keep everything on, on, on task. Schedule. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. So, but what can happen sometimes or what did happen in film when I was in it was the shoots would go really late. I was on one shoot that went 24 hours straight. Ugh. Right. Uh, so all the, the, you know, the teamsters, once it hit like 12 hours, they were all like making, you know, a lot of extra money. So uh, maybe they were happy that they were going to get a real big check at the boost. end of it. But yeah, but but also everyone was really tired, and when you're working around, you know, electricity and generators and heavy equipment and stuff, mistakes mm -hmm. can happen. And the more tired you get, you can have people getting hurt. Um, I actually saw a Fresnel lens on this like 
12K light, you know, so it's like 12,000 watts and it got wet and it shattered uh, glass. And the, um, I guess it was the Best Boy Electric uh, or the second electric, she had basically hurt her hand. She was, you know, the glass got in her hand and mm-hmm. cut her, you know, right? So it's just bad things happen when people are, are overworked. And, yeah. and at any rate, uh, there, there's a different shoot. I was not on this. I think it was uh, some movie in Hollywood. But basically, they went really long. Guy was driving home, got into a car wreck and died. Right. So they were like, hey, we got to really put a clamp on this because, you know, people will overwork themselves. Right. Yeah. And it, it unfortunately for a lot of people, it takes a tragedy to get them to realize, hey, maybe we should rethink how hard mm-hmm. we push people because this is not worth dying for. This is a job. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you hear about stories that are along those lines in other industries, including game development, it's concerning. Right. You yeah. don't want to hear about. Uh, you know, families that fall apart or people who have to go to the hospital because, you know, they can't keep up with the relentless pace. That's just, mm-hmm. that's terrible, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to do better. Um, otherwise, we're just going to burn people out. They're going to go uh, into another line of work. And, you know, we don't want to chew people up and spit them out. We want to actually retain good talent so that we yeah. can continue to learn from that and make better things. Right. And, it, and grow as an industry. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, unfortunately you, you hear about the horror stories and it just, it, it breaks your heart. Yeah. I want to ask you a general question about like just the phenomenon of crunch in the industry. Um, I haven't heard a lot of stories about ArenaNet doing crunch. Um, and from hearing your philosophy, I can imagine at least the folks that work around you don't have to deal with it. It sounds like you really highly prize work-life balance. We try very hard. Um, you know, have people worked more than 40 hours a week, uh, you know, if needed? Yeah. There have been occasions where people have had to, you know, put in some overtime to get something done. But usually when people talk about crunch, what they mean is the re- kind of like the relentless 70, 80, 90-hour work week yeah. that is extended weeks over and months. You know, yeah. weeks and months and stuff like that. Um, it has not been my experience at the studio mm-hmm. um, that that we would engage that, right? It's certainly not in our department, but there have been a couple of times where we're down to the wire and it's taking yeah. a long time to get something done or somebody gets sick or you know, family emergency, and then we're down like a, a one or two people to where you're like, okay, this stuff's got to get done. We can't, you know, and then people have to basically, you know, so I've worked the occasional weekend, but mm-hmm. um, as far as me crunching, I haven't crunched in I don't know how long. What's um, the, we, the hardest we, you've we had the haul ass to get something done? There was a period, I don't know, sometime over the past couple of years, I don't even remember which release it was or uh-huh. whatever, where I worked, I worked like two weekends in a row. Okay. Right. But, um, but I was able to, I think, work from home. So I would get up, I would go into, you know, the computer, uh, and, you know, that was actually one of the things I think I was actually, you know, working in the tool and doing some writing and, and mm-hmm. some, some narrative design stuff. But, um, you know, uh, I've worked other jobs that pushed me a lot harder, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it was wall street or whether it was working in retail, like retail is relentless, man. Yeah. Um, in the brief amount of time when, so after I quit wall street, I worked, uh, in, <laughs> in real estate for like two weeks. <laughs> I went, I got my certifications and then I was working, working a phone bank trying to, you know, this was at the very beginning of online realty. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, 
hated it, didn't like the company I was working for, didn't like the work <laughs> I was doing, and I bailed, right? So now I, here I was certified to sell real estate, but I didn't have a job. <laughs> It was so stupid, right? I was in a bad spot. This was after 9-11. I, I was still kind of getting my head straight mm-hmm. and was like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Um, but then uh, we knew that we were going to be moving to the Seattle area. Um, but I, I was just like, I need to work, right? So I was picking up temp jobs once in a while. Mm-hmm. But I got a job at a game store, man. Hey. I was uh, slinging, you know, PlayStation games and Xbox games and and that kind of thing, right? Um, and and part of it was I loved video games, so it was really great to be able to just talk to people. Like they, you know, you'd get uh, somebody coming in saying, "Hey, I want to get this gift for my mm-hmm. my kid, my spouse, my significant other, whatever." Right? And you can kind of ask them questions and kind of eke out maybe uh, maybe what this person might like and give them right. advice. And there was something really cool about that. Cause you're connecting with people. Yeah. You're just talking about a thing that you love. Right. And that was yeah. awesome. Uh, the pay and the hours were not great. Um, and some of the sales tactics, I'm not going to name the company. Uh, but the stuff that I saw working in retail, you know, I'd, I'd be the, you know, out for 12 hours, my legs would hurt. My back would hurt. You know, I'd realize that I didn't make that much money and the district sales manager was a total butthole, right? So like all these things combined, I was like, man, I I have a lot of respect for people who can grind this out because it's hard work. It's kind of thankless, especially when you get customers who come in and they're just really not respectful. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think it's important to have experiences in life that kind of teach you that. They, they t- it teaches you what it feels like to, uh, you know, not... Uh, necessarily be in an easy position, right? It yeah. can kind of uh, teach you some important life lessons. Uh, but it also, you know, gets you to appreciate the people who are doing that work because right. I think, you know, they work hard. Uh, a lot of times they are looked down upon by rude people, and I don't think that's fair. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and even though it's not uh, a, a career path that is for me, um, you know, there are people who do it, whether it's because they love it or it's out of necessity or some combination of those two things. Right. But seeing what that kind of life was like really kind of uh, humbled me, I think, in a way that when I finally got into the game industry, I started realizing, like, between working in film or between working on Wall Street or between working in retail, like, I had seen all these different things and it kind of gave me perspective so that when I actually, uh, you know, got into the game industry, I had had enough experiences to where I could be, take this in as a new thing, but also look to, for warning signs of stuff that maybe uh, uh, I could avoid, or even just, hey, understand that when you're mm-hmm. at a convention or you're going to the store to buy a thing, treat these people with respect. They're working hard, yeah. you know. Yeah, it sorry, like I'm you... just going all over. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like you you've developed a real sense of like, um, of perspective about, um essentially like, like working with, with your fellow man and woman, like, um, and a real respect for the fact that we all depend on each other, which we absolutely yeah. do. Yeah. I think, uh, that is a very succinct takeaway. Well, thank you. Uh, and I'm, I'm wanting to hear, um, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm like, wanted to hear some, some solid anecdotes. I wonder. I wonder if if I could ask you some Guild Wars two specific stuff. And uh, uh, sure, 
Sure. Um, let me see. Because I love your philosophy and I want to see how it's applied in these various situations. Um, let me pick a good one. Okay. Oh, here's a simple one to start with. Um, okay. What what Guild Wars character stands out to you as being particularly fun, or you can pick whichever way you want to approach it, fun or challenging to write? I mean, you know what I'll do? I'll talk about characters that I've written for, but then I'll just talk about characters that sure. the team writes for, right? Because yeah. So for starters, everybody in the narrative team pretty much touches everything, right? So... Um, You can imagine any character in the game, like everybody's written something for Ritlock at some point. Everybody's sure, sure. written something for, you know, Timey or Kanak or whoever. It's a village, right? Exactly, right? Um, I think some of the fun ones are, you know, f uh, for the group, uh, when they're when they're writing Kanak, he's kind of fun. Um, uh -huh. Kind of snarky, kind of. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there, there's sort of a... a kind of a sarca sarcastic element you know yeah. here's, here's a character who kind of started off as kind of like a mercenary character in a way like going all the way back to the south sun stuff but uh, -huh. uh you know as someone who has sort of was sort of uh did a bad thing was incarcerated was on a work release program you spent some time with him and basically he had to pay off his debt before he became okay. sort of a, a full-fledged member of your your group um Putting him on that arc was really cool because we could do some interesting things and show the dynamic between, you know, him as a character. I think there was a somewhere in maybe season, geez, what was it? I don't remember the season two mm -hmm. or season three. Anyway, there's a point where you're at a party, and uh, him and I think Countess Anise are sort of yeah. trading barbs back and forth, and I remember that being kind of a funny moment. That I remember uh, that. That was in season three. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you would, you would, it was at, at some like party of nobles or something like that. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, you know, stuff like that was really fun. And I know that the folks who, who wrote it and when we took it kind of in for, uh, you know, script uh, workshop and stuff like that, it was, it was a lot of fun to kind of shape those things and make sure that they said what they needed to say. They implied the right thing and you kind of got the subtext of yeah. the relationship between the two characters. Um, Canucks a fun one. Ritlock is, you know, I think yeah, there he is. <laughs> uh, actually, what's cool about this one Big is my wife actually got that signed by Steve Bloom. So it's oh. sort of a, yeah, uh, she was at Comic-Con and brought it to him and said, hey, listen, my husband works on the game with you. Uh -huh. and then she, what did you give him a t-shirt or something? Oh, yeah, she brought him a Guild Wars t-shirt and uh -huh. he signed it. And he was like, hey, Tail Bobby, I said hi. Yeah, I've worked with Steve a whole bunch. He's a great dude. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, he he's a great guy. Uh, or Ritlock is a fun character. Um, I love Lord Farron just because he's such a goofball. Yeah, yeah. You can have some fun with him. He's such a, I mean, you know, there's definitely silly moments where he's running around in his speedo or whatever. But right. um, you know, deep down inside, he has he has a heart, and you know, he's somebody who was threaded really early into the personal story, and we didn't do much with after that. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So I think once we got into Living World, we wanted to you know periodically use him for either. You know, I mean, comic relief is fine, and we certainly have fun with him as a character. But I think once you kind of 
understand a little bit more about who he is and you know we can do meaningful things with this story uh he's a he's a fun one to write yeah. yuri lowenthal is such a joy to work with uh-huh. um you know i had a lot of fun uh writing dialogue for glenna who's the raid character she takes you through on a whole yeah. bunch of the yeah raids and she was she was kind of fun she started off as just a a, a merchant npc in the first mm-hmm. raid wing and we didn't really think much about her um i think the whole thing started where in the first raid wing there's a crashed airship like up in the tree and mm-hmm. if you it's been a while since i worked on this thing uh there's a way you can get up and interface with her to buy uh yeah. gear right? a lay I portal or something like that so, yeah exactly yeah. you have to like kill a boss which then opens a lay rift and then you can yeah. get up there yes um but it was funny because the the content programmer who was doing game design on that uh raid he said look people shouldn't be able to get up here unless they do this but you know, Mesmer Portal, uh, uh-huh. you know, there's probably going to be an edge case where somebody figures out how to get up here. Yeah. And and I think they did, actually. But we, we put a, a funny little check in there that basically said, if you had killed a raid boss and you have this progress bit set on your character, uh, you know, obviously it's business as usual. And she says, kind of like, what do you want to buy? Uh-huh. Uh, but if you didn't, she goes, hey, how the hell did you get up here? Uh, get out. You know, because basically <laughs> we wanted to set up the rules that she wouldn't sell to you unless you had done this thing, right? Uh-huh. So, but we, but we wrote kind of a funny thing that most people would never see, um, and that was sort of the first experience where we're like, oh, she's kind of kind of sassy or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and really, when we started talking about like, so the first three raid wings are uh, basically it's like a three part um, story, right? Right. Yeah. And once we started saying you're going to go into the next area, and you know you rescue you know the the first wing you kind of learn what's going on and there's hints yeah, it's kind of, of a big mystery you know. you're kind of just yeah it getting starts off as it. a mystery and then the uh-huh. second one the mystery is revealed and then the third one it's like you're kind of going in there to to do some damage the confrontation um, mm-hmm. yeah um but the interesting thing was once we we get in, we got into the second one we started exploring the idea of having her being a little bit more prominent and i mm-hmm. I don't think she had much to do or say in there. She certainly, I don't think, followed you around except as like a vendor. Like you would beat a boss and then maybe she would move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the third one, we're like, hey, let's actually have her as a character. She'll go with you. And I remember, uh, you know, working with the designers on that. There was that whole event where basically she's carrying a bomb and the yeah. whole idea is people can like bring her around to where she can set off the bomb. But also you need to keep her away from the wargs and the other uh, yes. enemies that are, you know, they could kill her and then she drops the bomb and you fail, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Classic escort. Yeah, right. Um, but being able to write all this like conditional or situational dialogue where uh, we had a lot of fun with that, right? You know, uh-huh. uh, and we, we played around, around with the dialogue system for that because like normally when you do a story instance, whoever owns the instance, whoever goes in first, mm-hmm. you're the you're the character, who you're the player who talks. The POV, it's all about yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you go into a raid, anybody can talk, right? right? So, you know, if you you're the first one to the bridge, if you call Glenna over, or if you you know interact with this gadget, like whatever, mm-hmm. we've written dialogue so anybody can kind of uh, say things out loud, and and the characters might respond. So that was really fun. I remember um, noticing and, and appreciating that. There's a lot about the raids that's quite unique narratively that I appreciate. I had never, I had never played a raid. 
in any game before uh-huh. working on the raids. And I had to get a crash course from the designers who were really excited to work on this yeah, kind yeah. of con- content uh-huh. because, you know, they had raided in, you know, WoW and, and other mm-hmm. games. And they were real excited to try and do something like that for our game. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of came in with fresh eyes and ears because I just was like, okay, you have to explain to me what this is, what do players want out of them. Mm-hmm. We want to have a story, but I want it to be an appropriate story. And I don't, you know, we want to try and be, you know, tell enough that gets gets people interested, but not lay it on so thick that people are just like, shut up. I, you know, I want to move forward. Right. So finding that yeah. balance of, you know, you've got people who are in there to do a thing, and they're probably going to do it over and over again. Yes. Um, so trying to find that balance and you know, I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, we got everything right the first time. No, I mean, you know, it was very much an experiment uh, in a new game type for a game with, you know, so it was a learning experience. But what was really great is, you know, I could talk to the designers and get a sense for what they wanted to do, but also what they felt the players might want. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and I started watching a bunch of videos for a bunch of different games to see, like, well, how do they do narrative and reads in this game, right? Right. And a lot of them, I, you know, at least in the videos that I watched, there didn't seem to be a ton. So I was like, yeah. okay, maybe there's an opportunity to do something here. Um, but using the dialogue system in a cool way, um, you know, doing a lot of walk and talk, not doing a whole bunch of cinematics or whatever, and making sure that, uh, you know, we leave space for the gameplay to be the star, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, before or after a fight or just the key points, getting the information out that you want mm-hmm. uh you know people to know about the characters of the story then you put it in there right having kind of um, season the experience give it context yeah exactly right so it was a different uh way to look at it because uh you know when when you're doing the golden path story you know the the story is sort of the centerpiece mm-hmm. and you can afford to take you know i mean i would argue that you still want to be very mindful of pacing and and how you mm-hmm. do it but i think people who play the story or opting into an experience that is story heavy usually yes uh so you you have more time and space to do that kind of a narrative mm-hmm. but but the raids you have to scale back right um and we leaned into the dialogue system to do a lot of that heavy lifting mm-hmm. um and it was really great working with the uh audio designers and the game designers and just understanding okay well what systems do we have at our disposal and you know you've you got traditional things just like the bark system right so uh-huh. uh, player enters combat or creature enters combat they might have a list of things they could say and you know when they're suffering a condition they might you know look down that list and prioritize a, a thing they could say mm-hmm. but then looking at narrative opportunities to use systems like that uh you know at health thresholds can we have characters you know reveal a thing or when there's a boss phase change and you know this is all uh, standard industry stuff but it was kind of neat to dig in a little deeper and then look at uh, how you could get all the player characters to potentially um either say things out loud to where it's like hey i got there first i'm the one who's speaking for the party mm-hmm. or oh i'm a mesmer so of course i'm gonna have something to say about the enemy yeah. he's all mesmer or uh you know when i find this thing you know just goofy stuff like yeah, that so built in some uh, neat conditions and edge cases yeah, and it was really um, an interesting thing to where I appreciated a lot more of the work that the designers were doing because they, they kind of put on that that hat about, you know, thinking about things in terms of situations and conditions. And, um, you know, it really got me thinking a little bit more about the narrative design aspect of the writing and making sure, like, for example, we would have a bunch of um, alternate lines. So if we know you're going to be playing uh, the content a lot, Mm-hmm. We want to make sure there's a lot of dialogue variety so that if you're playing through the same scene, maybe you'll hear a different line of dialogue that you didn't hear before. Yeah. Uh, but also putting um, 
aggressive cooldowns on it. So, you know, one of the biggest, I think, mood killers in a game is hearing the same dialogue over and over and over again. It's really annoying. And mm-hmm. maybe it's a great line, but when you hear it 10 times, it's it's not good anymore. So, you know, the system allowed us to to put, like, cooldowns and replay delays and things like that on it. And it was really interesting to kind of get in there and situationally try and find that sweet spot to where, uh-huh. okay, this thing might actually happen a whole bunch of times. You know, it's really important that they hear it the first time, but after that, man, we can wait a while. Maybe we have a sound effect that, that carries that weight mm-hmm. going forward, or, you know, people will see, see the skill effect so they don't need, you know, obvious commentary about that skill because we've already kind of trained them that when they heard that line the first time and that skill went off, now they've made that connection. Uh-huh. But we also play that skill effect, that sound effect, and now they know that these things are all interrelated. Mm-hmm. And then, we can, you know, people can hear certain sound effects over and over again, and it's not quite as jarring as hearing the same line of dialogue. So, yeah, you can kind of play Language with those really things. grabs at your attention. In a exactly. Kind of way. Well, because it's so specific, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, you know, if you want it to feel better, you have to be very mindful of the player's time and also making sure that they're not just getting barraged with things that maybe you want them to hear a bunch of times, but they clearly don't. Right. right. So, um, so that was actually another thing narrative design wise and game design wise. We said, okay, if you are doing the escort event with Glenna, for example, at the mm-hmm. very beginning, when you take, when you tell her, okay, let's go. And she picks up the bomb. There's like this whole scene that plays out. Right. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, the first time that you do this, get the full scene. You know, it's like 10 or 12 lines. Of it's kind of a long scene, but you know, mm-hmm. it's not super long. Um, and there's some little funny moments, but if you cross the bridge and you get killed, we don't want you to have to sit through this long scene again. Yeah. Right. People are going to hate us. They're going to hate hearing this and that's not what we want. Right. So we, we built a fallback scene that basically, if you've heard that other scene, uh, and you're retrying the mission, we just shortcut it to like a three line version of it so that you can get started faster. Right. It's just like little, little things like that, that I think you have to think about and try and if you want to make for a really uh, pleasant play experience where it's immersive, but it feels more natural. You have to start thinking about, it's just as important to make decisions when not to say something that it is to when to say it. Right. And when to just let the game be the game and not to, yeah throw dialogue everywhere where yeah, it is or leave negative not space needed. yeah exactly mm-hmm. exactly yeah i i was listening to a lecture by brandon sanderson um fantasy author um and he talked about how and this is for writing you know fiction novels a different world but he talked about the principle like a, a triangle principle where like you want to have like you want to leave the top part of your triangle as negative space and the bottom part can be grounded in what you're actually saying because it it gives people a break. It lets them fill in the blanks. Like it's it's yeah. kind of what it's what people expect to hear when they're being told a story. Yeah, I'm actually glad that you mentioned that because um, I kind of think about it as uh, like so for 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 instance, like I think a lot of games that resonate with people are they do this thing where it's like the the critical you know the golden path the the main thing that you need to know in order for this to make sense and Mm -hmm. have dramatic and storytelling impact has to happen. And that's sort of Uh non-negotiable, but you can leave a lot of stuff in the margins, whether it's out in the world for you to explore 
um, or in how you write the scene, if you, like you said, you leave that negative space, if you put a lot of subtext into the dialogue between two characters, uh-huh. you can get the person who's playing or watching to fill in the blanks. They'll say one thing, but they actually mean something else, and it yes. starts getting you going like, okay. Um, sometimes that's just, it makes them feel more invested because they realize that people don't always say what they mean, right? And there's sort mm-hmm. of when you're in on what it is they actually mean, you feel like, okay, this is a real person. You're getting it. Um, you feel like yeah, you're, right? you're, you're playing the game. You're playing the game. Yeah. But but the other thing too is like this idea of opting in, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what's important in, in games in general, but especially like in stuff like raids is you want the story to be there in a satisfying way so that when people decide to opt into it, they're like, okay, I found this thing. I actually want to see what it is. Mm. That's the opportunity where they've made a, con- a conscious choice to do a thing or to learn or to kind of take a peek at what might be a little deeper below the surface. Uh-huh. You, you want to give them just enough to where they're interested and they'll either make the decision. Yeah, I don't care. And then they go off and no harm, no foul. Mm-hmm. Or you gave them just enough to where they want to learn more. So then mm-hmm. they're going to start looking around for the next bit of information so that, right. like you were saying, they're finding these parts that are actually related and mentally they have to put it together. Um, having people work at it a little bit, right? Um, be, because not, well, here's the other thing. They're not always going to put it together the same way. And it, what's mm-hmm. really interesting is sometimes I'll see what players how they interpret some of this stuff and some of them will interpret the parts and put them together either in a different order or just their takeaway is slightly different and it mm-hmm. might not be the intent uh-huh. uh, but it's really an interesting thing so sometimes i'll actually watch live streamers play the game and then comment on a thing a character said or a note that they found or you know a, a gadget that they interacted with and then a thing happened mm-hmm. and and sort of where their mind's at and you know early on of course they're going to speculate and and probably be all over the place mm-hmm. but my hope is that when they get to the end they're very close to what we were hoping that they mm-hmm. walked away with right but but i but i really do believe strongly in you know leaving a lot of that stuff putting it in there deliberately and mm-hmm. then letting people find it uh you know give them just enough so that everything connects and makes sense and is satisfying but get provide more that if they really want to learn and put it together and, and also feel like clever that they kind of solve the mystery in their head like that that's just really cool i love mm-hmm. i love playing games that are like that and my hope is that people who are experiencing it that way might also get some enjoyment mm-hmm. out of it yeah yeah i mean i i have enjoyed it personally um i can recall uh entering um uh, the first raid wing for the first time and stumbling into those those notes and the, and then oh, realizing yeah. oh there's like a and realizing that this wasn't gonna tell me a story the way I was used to and that it was gonna make me look for it and you know you're in a group and so the the group dynamic matters and like they want to do the content and people yeah. have done this ten times I've never done it once so like I'm, yeah. <laughs> like my interest yeah. in this story is different than their interest so like I kind of rush through the content and I but then I can go back. You and go like, back like, when it's cleared. Yeah. yeah. And the, so, yeah, I mean, we did a couple of things, right? We wanted to put an achievement in there that basically said, hey, find these things. Uh-huh. And then it's like, okay, I can tell that there's a list of these 10 things. So if all I'm looking for is the achievement, I just need to find these 10 things, right? Fine. And and I remember when I was working with the designer to script it, I'm like, I'm going to make this harder. I'm going to turn off all those name tags. So you normally in, in an MMO, there's like name tags everywhere. And yeah, it's yeah. like, Three rock, and I'm like, come on, like, give me a break. <laughs> Looking at it, you know what it is. 
so I always just found that kind of silly in games, right? You know, that, that everything has like like a like a name tag on it. Yeah. Um, but you know, whatever. It's part of the game. It's part of the the UI and the the UX. But we figured, okay, you're going and you're doing this content. If you're going to find this stuff, if all you had to do was hit a, the win button and see everything, that's kind of lame. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, let's just hide that stuff. You have to get near it to where either you see it and you know it's there, or you get close enough that you get that little interact where mm-hmm. it says like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the UI element pops up. Yeah, yeah, it you know, so then you know you found a thing, right? So that was one thing where like, okay, let's make people work for it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I remember QA was like, yeah. The name tags aren't on. I said, "Yep, by design." <laughs> Closed it out, and was like, "No, we we this is oh, deliberate." That's nice. Um, I like that. Well, it was great, and they were like, "Oh, okay, cool." And then they went and they tested it, and it was awesome. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, there were there was something. Oh, here's the other thing. We mm. were very deliberate in terms of where we put that stuff. In that, um, number one, when you're in a raid group, right? Not everybody's ready at the same time. A lot of people are like, "Okay, I'm gonna, I gotta go." get something to eat. I'll be back in five minutes. Right. And then you're just standing around and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe looking through your build or your inventory or whatever, but there is some downtime. And we figured that while you're waiting for things to happen, let's just make sure that we have a couple of things there for you to do. Maybe you only do it once, but if we have something there for you to click on, you're probably going to click on it the first time to just be like, well, what is this thing? Right. Yeah, yeah. And if we make it interesting enough, then you're like, Ooh, setting up a mystery, what's going on, you know, and then you find the next thing and then it starts to, you know, fill in the picture a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like there was that character who was by the wall and we knew that in the next raid wing, the way that we had, uh, the level designer had made it mm-hmm. was that on the other side of the wall was going to be this um, like sacrificial pit or whatever, right? I remember so we're like, speculating okay. so hard about what was on the other side of that wall and I was doing wing I'm one. glad because that, yeah, because the whole point was it's like if we if we make it sound like that this person's there and they can hear this thing going on, yeah. we can kind of it up the expectation so that when you actually get there, there's a thing there and it's the thing that they were talking about two months ago, right? Or whatever. Um, So we tried to put those things in places where we knew there wasn't going to be combat or you could clear the area and then it was safe to just do this stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then also just when you, when you clear the wing, you can just go back and do it at your, you know, your own pace. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that one, that one was, was pretty fun. And then we had this whole thing where, after you beat the end boss, you can just collect your stuff and get out of there. <laughs> but we created like a whole little area that was up there that wasn't being used. And we we're like, let's put the prisoners up there. We've been talking about all these prisoners. So let's let you go up and just kind of talk to them. Yeah, like you know, a little they tree village. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was a really interesting um, map. I, I think the origins of it were sort of like a concept or, or, or whatever from a different, like I think some of the art was originally meant for something else. Okay. And then when we decided to do the raids in the in the fashion that we were doing, some mm-hmm. of it was repurposed and moved mm-hmm. around. And I remember working with the um, uh, the level artist uh, at the time. I think on the first one it was actually Tirza, um, hmm. and it was just really wonderful. To be like, hey, you know, kind of the setup here is these soldiers have been kidnapped and they're all brought here, but they're not all there, so we want to have them go up, and you can. You know, there's an achievement to it. Just a little thing, you know, just to make it feel like a little fun. Like there was a little bit more to the story than mm-hmm. they're just telling you this thing happened, but we're not actually showing it, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, she put all these cages in there and the designer scripted the cages that you can interact with them. And I'm like, okay, let's write a scene between the player who opens it and, and you know, the, the character and stuff. So it was just really 
fun that we were able to kind of create a story that took place in multiple raids and that we had to think far enough ahead to how all these things connected such that Mm -hmm. we were making deliberate um, game design decisions, art decisions, and narrative decisions so that when you finally got to the end, it actually felt like a cohesive experience. I love that exploration process. That narrative exploration was some of the most fun I've had probably in the game. Also, oh, like I, I raided old like back in the day. Like I ran a forty man raid oh, wow. in like early World of Warcraft. Like I'm a mega nerd, man. And um, aren't we all? Man? <laughs> well, I mean, we're here talking about video games. Yeah, I was about to say, like, so, like we, I, I think we, we we might have similar interests. Preaching to the choir. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I love that, and I loved like the how the you get into the wing one and it's bandits. And like there's weird noises on the other side of the wall and eventually it resolves into a white mantle and it links back up with the story being told through the this this the season and i know that yep. you i saw in your credits you were the lead writer on both the raids and season three and uh, is that is that yeah, actually the, the mean, credit situation is a little confusing to me it's a little weird so what i would say is this for the first four raids uh-huh. Um, I was like the only writer, basically. Um, okay. When, I think on the second raid, uh, Angel, who was on the team at the time, did some of the um, the the refugee or the the people who you rescue. Yeah. Um, she did the, the scene dialogue there, and she wrote some of the notes and stuff. Um, but all four of the raids, I basically uh, worked with the team and our narrative director at the time uh, to kind of come up with a, a story arc. Mm-hmm. And I basically did the writing and a lot of the narrative design. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the game designers did a lot of the the hookup and implementation, and they did some of the narrative design too. I mean, actually, that's one thing that's kind of cool about ArenaNet is, uh, you know, our our team is narrative, and we call ourselves writers, writer narrative designers, right? Mm-hmm. Because we write, but we bare minimum have to know a lot of conceptual narrative design so that we can have meaningful collaboration with game designers. And some of right. us actually do some of the, you know, somewhat technical hookup or whatever but mostly like on the vo side and not process stuff going on yeah a little bit but but our game designers actually do a lot of the narrative design too right they Uh might not write a bunch of the dialogue that actually ships they'll write some like stub dialogue and if it's if it's good and it works we're like okay cool we'll keep that off of it yeah yeah, right um but otherwise you know we're basically responsible for making sure that the scripts are you know a, a certain way uh, by the end of it, right? But their focus is really on the encounters and the logic of, you know, setting up the kind of story steps. But the implementation of the scenes, the blocking the characters moving around, like they do all that. And that's narrative design work as far as I'm concerned, yeah. right? So uh, it's great because there's a ton of overlap. Um, all this is to say, you know, I was basically the primary or only writer on the first four raids. Uh-huh. And then my my role for that is I was doing like I was the lead of that because I was like the only one doing it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I get it. In terms of like my lead responsibilities on Living World, I was more of managing things and not doing a ton of the the writing. So I see. You know, being a lead or being a manager, uh, you know, your what you do and how you do it can flex between mm-hmm. um, projects, right? So even though technically I was a, a lead writer or the narrative lead on like the core game, for example, mm-hmm. I didn't write the I didn't write the Golden Path story. I see. I, I was responsible for the open oversight. world. Okay. It was well. It was open. It was the open world dialogue. So dynamic event, uh, ambient, um, sure. some of the systemic chatter, stuff like that. Uh, the Golden Path story was actually done by 
um, two other writers who were, you know, uh, Reese Hosme and Jeff Grubb. Who the, were the personal story. The, yeah, they had done personal story and the dungeon story, right? You know, so oh, the, sure. the Destiny's Edge stuff. Uh, Re actually went on to write the um, the third novel to CSRs. Uh, I think it's been a while, but yeah. yeah. Um, and Jeff had actually was a co-writer on the first book um, with uh, Matt Forbeck um, and Rob King did the second Ghost one. Ghost of Sorry, Ascalon? Like, yeah, Ghost of Ascalon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was our first uh, tie-in novel. Um, but, you know, so having that title can mean a different thing depending on, you know, where I am needed or where people need to be sure. focusing their work, right? So... You know, in some cases, I would lead the charge on the story. In other cases, I'm there just to kind of uh, help manage things and, you know, do a lot of... Help facilitate. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, call meetings, make sure that things are getting addressed, check right. in with people, you know, if they're having technical problems, work with the tools team to help resolve it, yeah. uh, onboarding new hires, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think in a lot of the seasons, I might write content for it, but not as like the uh like showrunner writer or anything like that you just know, rolling I mean, up your sleeves well, yeah right. helping the team yeah um you know i feel like because i've been in the company so long and i know how a lot of these things have to be yeah you know done, uh you know i pretty much go where i'm needed and sounds like you wear a lot like, of hats uh, yeah <laughs> yeah well and what's been great about uh you know having tom uh you know i mentioned him before tom abernathy yeah uh you know, he comes from a screenwriting the background. director, right? Yeah, exactly. He has been great because I think we complement each other really well in that um, he uh, really kind of comes from a craft perspective. Okay. And, you know, in my opinion, ever since he joined the, the studio, he really kind of focused us in terms of writing our stories more dramatically in the same way that maybe a serialized television show would, right? We adopted uh -huh. some... Uh -huh processes that he had used uh you know in some of his screenwriting days uh and he had been in the industry uh you know tied to the gdc narrative summit for a long time right so he knew games and he knew mm -hmm. uh that because i had worked on guild wars for a long time because i knew the tools and processes and had a hand in you know at least giving guidance in for the people who were actually building that stuff but also knowing how to use it yeah um what was really great is the two of us could kind of get together and then uh, you know approach the problems that needed solving and go where we were needed um and it actually worked out really well right so i think i can focus on things like people management or hiring or you know the mentorship program or just hey you know what uh like here's the funny thing i didn't do a ton of writing on season five at least not at the beginning like i did some script punch up and yeah, stuff like I that yeah, but um, as the releases went on and, and the more that people needed help with it, like, okay, I'm going to write some ambient scenes over here or I'm going to take this uh, first draft and, and mm -hmm. you know, take it to the finish line or, you know, so a lot of the stuff that I've been doing lately is while the rest of the team is kind of working away on End of Dragons, I'm kind of helping to make sure that the last bits of Ice Brood Saga stuff are you know, where they need to be. So I'm working uh -huh. with the design lead on that and I'm getting in there and doing a lot of the like dialogue timing or I'm writing a bunch of the, the journal stuff, which, you know, not everybody even reads, right? But mm -hmm. it, it does need to be accurate, right? So um, just and it, because I've done this so many times over the years, yeah. I can just be like, listen, I'll take this off your plate. You concentrate on hitting this deadline for, you know, this recording session that we've got coming up and right. like, we'll make sure that, 
this release goes out and it's in good shape, right? So, yeah. um, you know, if the work needs to get done, I'm, I'm not shy about doing it, but I'm also happy to let uh, the team, you know, tank the the writing and for me to take care of other things. Like we, we just hired down. Yeah, exactly. Well, like we just had to uh, hire some people and I've, uh-huh. I've spent the past few months going through um you know candidate resumes and setting up phone calls and and yeah. you know sending out notes a lot on, of work goes into that yeah and it's just it takes time and like we had mm-hmm. a, a job like i don't know a year or two ago where we had like 500 applicants and oh. i am very um empathetic to people who really hate the hiring process uh-huh. i mean in games or just anywhere like being someone in a position looking for a job it's a tough position you know yes. it's you know, you either want a job or you really need one because you're out of work. And, you know, usually the story is people just shotgun their resume everywhere and they mm-hmm. might not even get more than, and they might not even get any reply, right? Or they'll get the automated, yeah, we got it. Don't call us, we'll call you. And that's uh-huh. the last thing here, right? That's a really sucky yes. experience, right? Uh, and I can't say that, oh, you know, that'll never happen. Like, of, of course it's going to happen when you've got 500 or 1,000 people. Right. It's a scale issue. There's stuff into it. Like you can't necessarily give, you know, give a hand. Uh, what do you call it? Like the uh, white glove service to everybody who sends yeah. their stuff. In. To give a personal message but, to follow up on, you know. Exactly. Like, so one one thing that I try to do is just um, if they're clearly way off, and this was just they, you know, needed to send out five applications to get their unemployment, but they're not even like they don't even do this. It was just like kind of a a a shotgun yeah. uh, approach, I, you know, we'll send you the automated rejection. Right. But if it looks like you're really trying, mm-hmm. uh, my hope is that bare minimum, I can at least put some bit of information that might give you some context as to why maybe. Yes. Uh, you didn't, right. Like, so for example, if it's a senior position and someone clearly has never done this before or their portfolio is good, but they just don't have the on the job experience and it's like listen you're just not right for this maybe you're right for a junior position but you're not right for a senior one Mm -hmm. i'll actually you know take that response and put that in there we require x amount of years of experience you do not meet this requirement and that's why wow you didn't get it right my job applying experience that's dramatically more than than most companies will do that's yeah well and you know uh if we the the agreement I've made with myself and uh-huh. it has got me into trouble at least once, <laughs> uh, just in that it, it it created a lot more work for me than I really yeah. should have taken on was, if we get to the point where we have a phone call, mm-hmm. uh, I kind of make a point to, as much as I can. And again, there have been edge cases where I haven't been able to do this, but mm-hmm. most of the time I want to make a commitment to myself, but also to the person applying that I'm going to ha- give them the decency of, of a callback to let them know what happened, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other day, we we had some interviews with some really wonderful candidates, right? Mm-hmm. But if you've got one position open and you get a lot more people, you can't make everybody's day and give them the job. You have to pick you know, the person who's right for it. Right. And the thing is, when people are that close, when they get an interview and they they, they don't get the job, I really feel like it's in everybody's interest to let them know why and have that human discussion where you're like, hey, we loved meeting you. Uh, you were, you did really great in these areas. There were a couple of things that ultimately made us go with somebody else, right? And sometimes sure. it's about the other candidate. The other candidate just had more experience. The other candidate was a better fit for the team or whatever, uh-huh. right? 
and and it's going to be different in every case. Uh, but in some cases, it's like, hey, when we asked you questions about narrative design, you really didn't give us anything of substance, right? Sure. Uh, or you gave us an answer that sounded like you were making up something on the spot and you were sort of covering for the fact that you didn't know. We try to create a safe space to where if somebody doesn't know something, they can just tell us. Like your job is not to try and trick the other person in the conversation. Your right. job is to be honest so that we know what we're getting, you know what you're getting in the, you know, from us. And, you know, if we can answer the question, we answer it honestly. And if we can't, mm-hmm. we just say, sorry, I can't talk about that. Right. Um, and in the case of uh, a person interviewing, like I want them to know what they like if they're ever interested, if they really wanted to work with our team or on the game, I want to give them something that they can think about. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases, like there was a person who we hired at first or sorry, we interviewed at first, did not give them the job. Mm-hmm. I called them back and I said, it was great meeting you and talking to you, but we're not going to move forward. Um, here are the reasons why. Uh-huh. And here are the things you can work on in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you know it, six months later, we had another opening uh, and their name was sort of fresh in my head. And I said, hey, we have this other position. Are you interested in applying? They said, oh, yeah. Right. And and I did that with a couple of candidates, not just this one. Yeah. You know, there were a few people who we had talked to. I was like, hey, you know, like maybe we should talk to this or take another look. And when you know it, this person took that advice, changed their portfolio and played a whole bunch more games. And when we started asking them questions about narrative design they can answer them and everybody back to heart they took it to heart and we ended up hiring them and i was like okay that's That's sort of like a success story right and it's the same thing with the the mentorship program like we just hired uh, a a contract writer Mm -hmm. actually we just hired two people who had gone through the mentorship program and what was really wonderful is uh you know we saw that they had talent and potential so we said hey Mm -hmm. we don't think you have enough experience to where you could easily find a job but if you're willing to participate in this program you know it's not a job we're not going to ask you to do any work it's completely voluntary in terms of like how much time you know basically it's like you get access to us you can show us your work and we'll give you critique sure uh, we'll have some um presentations or discussions we'll we're hopefully we'll impart some you know industry wisdom or whatever uh-huh. uh but it, it also gives us a chance to see how they develop. Do they, you know, how are they in a group setting? And yes. if they show us really great work and we see that they could be a very good, you know, culture ad, they're, they're not only getting along well with people, but they're bringing something to mm-hmm. the team that we could really benefit from, right? Uh, they get the experience and they get to, uh, you know, learn from us. And then hopefully we can create a path that they can get a job, whether it's with us or with somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. And we've been fortunate. Three different people who have been through the mentorship program, we've actually been able to give opportunities to. And there are others who have gone on to great success and they've said, oh yeah, by the way, uh, I was working in this industry. And then like one, you know, two of the people who were in the mentorship program have gone on to director positions only uh-huh. a few years later after, you know, and it's because they were talented, uh, they worked hard and they learned and they put in their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they put in their time actually in the trenches working and doing this stuff and they developed their skills to the point where when that next job was available, they were able to go out and get it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's awesome. You know, when good people are able to really make a career out of something and open up doors for people and, you know, it's just, it, it's awesome. So, yeah, it sounds like, like Bobby, like you're very, 
uh, like community minded almost. Like you care not just about the health of the game you're working on or the studio people working at the studio, but the overall like community of people who are work who are doing this kind of work. Yeah, I you know it's it's twofold. Thank you for saying that. Um, like I do care about the community in that like I if there's an opportunity to connect with people. Uh-huh. whether it's at a convention or just popping in the forums or something like that. It's really gratifying because I think people have thought enough about our game that they've invested their time, whether they play the free thing and you know, they got a couple hours out of it and decided to move on or whether they've actually, you know, bought the game and been with us mm-hmm. day one. You know, I'm curious, like what, why they play it, what they like, what they don't mm-hmm. like, what could we do better? Some of it is just, Hey, they, they're really looking for something else that we're not providing. You know, we can either make the conscious choice to provide that, or we just say, Hey, that's great. Um, our game, we don't, that's not what our game's about, uh-huh. but you can find that. And we want you to be happy. Right. So I think that's one of the things that we're happy about the game being sort of like pick up and play. You don't have to worry about your credit card getting hit every month with a, with a subscription right. charge. Right. So yeah. I think it's easy for people to get in and out if they need to. Um, and I think respectful of people's time and resources. I hope so. I mean, you know, I'm sure people would have opinions uh, different than that, but about yeah, certain aspects of the game. That's my opinion. Yeah. No, I, um, but thank you. I mean, I, I think definitely one of the things that we were trying to do, and again, I'm not trying to speak on behalf of design or anybody else, but I think the overall um, sort of, uh, I don't know, identity of the project was to try and be a bit more respectful of people's time and uh-huh. also to feel like uh we would you know the community is the thing that is responsible for our success right uh-huh. if people didn't like the game we were playing didn't play it we i wouldn't have this job right so you know i think we have a lot of uh thankfulness for, for the people who have been with us as long as they have um and i think what's been wonderful is just getting to know some of the people in, in the community and hearing uh-huh. what they have to say. And sometimes it's just, Hey, a, a content creator or a fan is going to make a video and, you know, maybe they'll say something that is very nice and complimentary. Maybe they'll call out a thing they hate and mm-hmm. they'll totally bag on the thing that I spent, you know, six months working on or whatever. Right. But, <laughs> and I know I'm not going to, you know, I, or we are not going to make everybody happy, but even yeah. just hearing that, that standpoint is like, what is this person actually like? And, and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, should, should we, there's always something to learn from it. And sometimes the thing you learn is, okay, this is not for you because we're trying to do something different than what it is that you're looking for. And other times mm-hmm. it's, I see what they want and that seems like a really cool thing to, to strive mm-hmm. toward. Right. And then maybe we'll do a better job on the next thing, or yeah. maybe we'll go back and, and fix a thing that didn't necessarily land as well as we wanted. Right. right. So it's been really um kind of humbling but also rewarding um meeting people in real life or just online so mm-hmm. um yeah I, I think in terms of you know the community is the people we work with and the people who we work for i guess you could say yeah right and and, and i value both of those things mm-hmm. i think i think I'll, i think it is kind of a core part of i think that reads i think that reads i hope so bobby i i want to be respectful of your time i asked you for a couple of hours so, um, <laughs> okay. I don't know it's late by you. I'm enjoying the conversation and I'm happy to continue it. 
So and I'll make it up to you. Okay. Yeah. If you want to keep going? I've got a little bit more energy and then I'm probably going to have a slice of pizza or something. Oh, that sounds good. Let's do it. Actually, <laughs> if I may ask for a couple minutes just to refresh my sure. beverage and then Please. we'll continue. Okay. okay. You want to take a quick break? Yeah, let's right, do right five back. minutes. Let's plan for five. Five minutes. All right. I'll be back right. in five. Be right back, folks. And we're back. Hey, everyone. Y'all haven't forgotten by now, I'm sure, but I'm Deeg. This is Basement Side Chats here with Bobby Stein. And we've been talking all about narrative and all about um, all the lovely things that go into creating narrative for video games, especially all the people. And one of the things yeah. you were just talking about, Bobby, is how much respect you have for the feedback that comes back to you, not just um, from the community of, of developers, but the community of gamers who are making your game possible, making all games possible. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting to hear you call out, like, um, you know, you take feedback from people and you try to hear the truth in it, it sounds like. Um, yeah, it can, it, it's funny because, you know, people, when they have something to say, some people only have something to say when they're unhappy. And other times uh -huh. people have something to say because they just want people to understand, you know, what's important to them or what, you know, how they feel about a certain thing. Um, and I think the important thing is to try and get at the heart of what the message is because sometimes it can be obscured by the way that it's delivered, right? So I'm always interested in, well, before we were talking about subtext, you know, you're, you're saying one thing, but you mean something else. A lot of times when people are giving feedback, they're saying one thing, but really what they mean is, is below the surface of that. And sometimes uh -huh. you have to kind of ask questions or try and parse meaning from something that yeah. maybe it's not readily apparent in the way that it was presented. So, um, and that's just, you know, getting to know people, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I think when it's the same people um, giving you the same feedback, you can start to develop a relationship and learn how to communicate with them. But in other cases, it's just, you know, I watch a lot of YouTube, right? And mm -hmm. some of it's gaming related and some of it's about Guild Wars and some of it's about other games that I like to play or mm -hmm. that I'm curious about learning about, right? And hearing uh, people talk about the thing that they like or that they wish were different or better um, can be really um, enlightening mm -hmm. in some ways. So it is it is an aspect of being a developer that I appreciate. Uh, I, I can't say that I enjoy every minute of it because there have been cases where it's just kind of demoralizing, right? Right. Uh, you know. I mean, that's just sort of being online, right? Sometimes uh, when when a bunch of people have something to say that might be uh, constructive or critical, it can sometimes be difficult to hear. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important to hear, right? So mm -hmm. I think if if you're the kind of developer who can navigate those waters and maintain a healthy balance and kind of like that, uh, I don't know, just work-life balance or just, you know, overall happiness. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, a worthwhile thing, but I think not everybody um, needs to do it. Not everybody has to do it. So I think for any given developer, they have to kind of make the decision that makes the most sense for them and then mm -hmm. engage as much or as little as they, they feel appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I know that people make very different decisions about how to engage with social media. Some people are comfortable just like, having their lives hanging out there and it, it doesn't really drag them down. Some people uh, are much more in the camp of like, 
I can't engage with it without getting consumed by it. They treat it almost like a dangerous substance. Yeah. Well, yeah. Social media can do that. Um, I, I think over time I've sort of been very selective about the things that I share either about myself or the people who I care about or work or whatever. Right. Uh Just, I think everything that you put out there says something. There's the digital footprint and people can interpret it a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think some people definitely like and appreciate uh, being seen uh, or having a persona or just being well-known. Uh-huh. And I think other people like the uh, relative obscurity, you know, okay. being more someone who can observe and take it in, but not necessarily have to be out there or have your whole life out there. Yeah. And I think I'm somewhere in between. I like having a public presence such that i can engage with people who care about the work that i do or uh-huh. um you know are interested in this industry or, or the studio or something but at the same time i don't i don't feel the need to put it all out there i just you know i, I have to find the balance that makes sense for me and for my family so yeah that's just the way that i go about it so i hear you yeah i think we we live in a time where um i think we're all kind of figuring out as like the, the community people making and playing games. Um, and of course worldwide too, but like um, just thinking about the, like the, even the gaming space is huge of how do we interact with each other? Um, you know, like a big part of the reason why uh, we got connected is because I've seen you out there. Like I've seen you oh, on wow. guild chats. I've seen you, t- I've seen you on Twitter. I've seen you on Reddit and it's like, Oh, I, this is like a person I can connect with. So like that, what you said is literally true in this case. Like you putting yourself out there is how we connected, how we're able to have this conversation. Whereas someone else um, who isn't putting themselves out there and has chosen like, yeah, like that's kind of the trade-off you make. Um, and like, I've, I've, I'm just, I don't know if I have a question about this, but it is something I'm personally very fascinated about because you see different people from different studios, from different different kinds of games have different kind of postures about engaging with their gaming community. Yeah. And, um, you know, we all, we all can think of cases where it's gone wrong. Um, yeah. And uh, there are also cases where it's gone really right. Um, there's mm-hmm. some games that um, where like some rare, some rare communities where the, the developers and the community really seem like they're in love with each other almost. Like I think of like, like old school RuneScape as like an example. Um, but it's an interesting space where we're all wrangling this new technology and the powers of identity it gives us. And uh, I don't know. I I think that being out there, being on the on the front lines, even if it's just in a a um, constrained way, is like uh, it speaks to. It's, it sounds. I'm, I'm guessing maybe it's. What I'm hearing is it's speaking towards like that overall approach that I hear from you about like um, get out there, try to connect, see where there's value. And um, like, just raise the overall bar. I hope so. I mean, I kind of look at this as, you know, the world is bigger than just, you know, the things that I see and engage in, right? And but when we're out there, whether it's what we do and the work that we mm-hmm. do or create, um, it's going to have an impact that that is farther reaching 
and you know might even outlive us, right? And I've always looked at it as you make a, a choice every day in terms of how you leave the world. And I feel like if we're going to make an impact, let's make a positive one. Let's try and make sure that we're we're pushing things in the right direction. Uh, even if it's just in small ways, even if it's just to the people around us, you know, the internet has opened uh, things way wide to where yeah. you can talk to people who you would never meet uh, in real life, uh, you know, what they call it, meet space or whatever. Um, <laughs> I'll give you an example, though. Um, when I first was freelancing and thinking about getting into video games, I ended up interviewing a, a fair number of developers who, mm -hmm. like you said, I knew about them because they were a name, right? Yeah. You know, whether back in the day when, when there were magazines, <laughs> um, you know, you'd read about uh, like John Romero or you'd read yes. about um, Cliff Lezinski or you'd read about mm -hmm. um, uh, Brenda Romero, right? Uh, or anybody who had had an impact on the industry and made a thing that had touched a lot of lives, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was uh, freelancing, just on a whim, I was like, look, if I'm doing most of these interviews by email or phone, um, I'm just going to reach out to people and, and you know, if, if they don't get back to me, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I tell you, like, I, I think it was through John Romero's, like, website or something. I, it was like a contact me like, and I was just like, let me see if the guy wants to do an interview. And he got back to me. He's like, sure. And the next thing I know, I'm like, this is bizarre. Like, <laughs> you know how many hours I spent playing Doom and now, you know, so <laughs> this yeah. person who made a big impact is answering, you know, these, these silly questions that I've got. I can and totally relate to that. It, yeah. Right. <laughs> so it was a, it was a big, uh, mind trip and then the funny thing is so i back then this was like more than 20 years ago i had a friend out in seattle and we would come out and visit and i was like you know what if i'm going to be out there visiting i want to see if i can talk to somebody at any of these studios mm -hmm. right so back when gas powered games was around and you know there was like chris taylor and um other folks who worked there i just same thing i just went to the website was like hey all right doing you know right for this website want to interview some people Mm -hmm. uh oddly enough they were like sure you know they were totally open with it they were probably like who cares like you know nobody knew who i was i wasn't anybody right i was mm -hmm. just some weirdo uh, who was living in jersey at the time who was like oh, you know i want to talk to game devs right and and uh -huh. sometimes i was just legitimately interested in, in them or the work they were doing and also i was trying to get a, a peek inside mm -hmm. you know a dev studio and just sort of learn a little bit more about the people behind the work but also the work itself and I ended up talking to a handful of people who, you know, I think still in the industry. But it was funny. I remember meeting this really, really nice guy uh, who was the, I guess, art director at the time there, mm -hmm. a guy by the name of Steve Thompson. And I remember we had this really fun discussion where he was talking about, you know, playing Mario Sunshine. And he remembered when he got the game, he just kind of pointed the camera at the water and he was just amazed at sort of the technology that they had done to make the water look as good as it did. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I remember it was sort of like his eyes lit up and he was like a kid talking about you know, yeah. the magic of video games. Right. And it was yeah. really a wonderful moment. You know, I had it on my little handheld tape recorder and, you know, went home, typed it up, 
published it and whatever. And, you know, some people read it and <laughs> that was kind of all there was to it. Right. Flash forward. Like. 15 years. And. This guy shows up in one of the company emails at ArenaNet and it's like, hey, everybody, welcome Steve Thompson. And he was at Gas Powered and all this stuff. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to work with this guy. Uh huh. I remember catching him in the cafeteria and I said, Steve, this is going to sound really weird. I promise this is like I'm not stalking. I said, <laughs> I interviewed you like 15 years ago. I went to your office. He goes, oh, yeah, I remember. And he started talking about it. And it was this crazy full circle moment where. Uh huh. 15 years ago, I was sitting opposite a table and he's telling me about how much he loves the water tech in Mario Sunshine. And and now I'm working with this guy and I got a chance to actually go in meetings where he was talking about, you know, art direction for cinematics and he's drawing storyboards and doing all this cool stuff. And man, what a, like, I thought he was a cool guy when I was interviewing him. And now here I am, I'm in meetings with him and we're making creative decisions together mm-hmm. and you know, I'd talk about a story thing that we're doing and he would, his eyes would light up. He's like, yeah, we can frame the shot this way. And he was just, you never know, like the world is actually a smaller place than it, than it may seem. Mm -hmm. And the people you encounter for whatever reason, you never know when you might see them again, or maybe have the, you know, the, the ability or the opportunity or just the, the, the pleasure of working with, with someone. right? Right. So it was just, it really kind of brought it in a little bit that this was actually like games themselves and the industry and the people who play them are a community. And I've been to, you know, numerous conventions and met people who then like I would meet in game or the next time I was at that convention, I would meet them again. Or maybe when we had a community event they would come around and we would chat and i would get kind of get to know them a little bit Mm -hmm. and it was really like you said games can really bring people together and sometimes it's just the connection with other people that can sometimes be the the biggest benefit from playing the game yeah Yeah, right um so yeah it's it's wild that's 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 cool man that's an awesome story i the thing you said about people being the payoff, something I really resonate with myself. Um, like one of the, my formative gaming moments, like when I was, I guess not, not strictly young, I was high school and college age. Um, it was right when broadband was starting to gain adoption and Half-Life 1 had been released. And I was playing a game called Team Fortress Classic. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, such a great game. Um, and I fell into a community, which was my first experience of playing, of, any kind of online community connection. Cause this was like before social media was around, like no one was doing yep. this and I would play and I'd see people with these funny little symbols in their names. I ask, what's the symbol? Oh, it's, it's my clan. It's like, what is the clan in this? Like, like a guild kind of idea. And I asked them, I said, yeah, you can just go to our website and check it out. And like they have a, like an IRC server to talk to each other <laughs> using ICQ back in the day. Dude, and like games. <laughs> Save Defeat was my game, right? And yes. same thing. We went to the server and we had our our clan, and it, I got to know. Actually, one of the guys who I met was re- right out of the military, I think. Uh-huh. And I was talking. To him. He was a bit younger, and you know, I we were we would just share stories about our lives. I'm still in touch with the guy on like Facebook. Yeah. Like, 
you know, and this is like 20 years later from playing in this, you know, goofy team-based shooter or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's the connections, man. So do you, so wait, so what what happened with the uh, the Team Fortress thing? Well, what happened was I got really into it. I, I, I led a clan with a couple of buddies of mine for about three years. And then eventually it, it kind of died. People went their own ways, you know, you grow up. But then in 2018, um, I got a message from someone on Facebook, one of my old buddies who I was still kind of connected to. We didn't talk much, but he said, hey, jo uh, download Discord and join this app. A bunch of TFC players are here. I was like, what? TFC? <laughs> like, that's like a like a movement in the force. Like, like it kind of went past my, my ear. I checked it out and like hundreds of people from this community that's almost 20 years old were just hanging out and talking about the old days. And we actually kind of brought the band back together and we... We played some TFC and now we, now we, we most days, you know, complain about work and our spouses, but you know, yeah. like it's, it's, it's a grown up community of, of people where it's not just like, we're not just here to play a game. Like we're here to have a fellowship. Connect. Yeah. Yeah. My father is in his seventies and he plays Guild Wars probably like every night. I mean, he played, here's the funny thing before I got the job at arena net, he did not play and oh. i think he was being a supportive father and be like oh my my son works at this that's place. sweet and i said dad let me get you yeah, i bought him a copy of the game and i figured it would just go on his like bookshelf and collect sure, dust sure. or whatever he actually installed it he actually made a character and he got so into it that next thing i knew he was creating spreadsheets of like the gear yes. that he wanted to you know <laughs> craft and, and like all the skills like he was because he you know here's a guy who i, I think at the time was he had just retired after working 35 years, mm -hmm. you know, in telecom or whatever. And now his hobby uh, was genealogy and then playing this game hardcore. Uh -huh. And, you know, then he's like in a guild that's from Germany and all this stuff. Uh -huh. And yeah, dude, it's, you know, uh, it's just kind of nutty that uh, sometimes the way that I keep in touch with my dad is I just hop in the game and we can chat that way. That's rad. That is so rad. It was very cool to have a family member being that so, like, cause usually it's like, Oh, that's nice. You know, I have this, right. uh, you know, right. son or cousin or whatever who does this thing, but no, he was super. Su I mean, when I was a kid, he bought me the Commodore 64 and that was sort of like where I really started. Uh, start to of see it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and yeah, so it was just really, really cool to, to have that continue. That's very and, cool. Yeah. How, how cool that we can have the technology to build an experience like this, to connect like this. How cool. Oh yeah. Do you ever watch, um, uh, I don't know how it's pronounced, Sirmore, Sirmore or something. There's a, a YouTuber who does, uh, VR chat interviews. Oh, I know. With, I think I know what you're talking about though. Yeah. So they'll 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 be in they'll be inhabiting these like kind of quirky avatars, right? Yeah. Uh, but having these really deep like Anakin Skywalker deep. talking to Winnie the Pooh about like exactly. PTSD. Yep. Yeah. I've it's seen these. Amazing. Yes. I I love that uh, you know, human connection, right? And some of the people who he uh talks to, you know, a guy from I guess Germany or Sweden, I don't remember exactly, but uh there was it was a couple of part interview where talking about working in a morgue right mm. or, or a, a soldier who had gotten back from 
uh, a tour of duty and was talking about their experiences in and out of the military and just like all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. or you know people who had uh traumatic time growing up and sort of what their experiences were or you know uh a man who is terminally ill with a sickness and sort of reflecting on his life i mean it's just really uh fascinating human stories just just juxtaposed in this weird 3d uh-huh. world where everybody's you know mismatched and and mm-hmm. you know just kind of looking it's a great distance. out of place yeah, it's it's really cool and just yeah, the questions are really insightful and sometimes really hilarious. So, um yeah, just it's amazing like you were saying just the fact that technology can bring people together in this new weird way and mm-hmm. some of these people probably never have never interacted or connected if not for this opportunity. It's sort of like an uh, an example of when technology is used for good or at least good entertainment mm-hmm. um, rather than just, you know, people being horrible to each yeah. other. Online. Yeah, and I, I see stuff like this as like a, like an answer retort to like the, the, the idea that like the internet is a plague or like a mistake or social media is a... Some days it feels like it. Like man, a virus or something. Like, I mean, yeah, like... I, I really just respect that, you know, we we're all humans who evolved to live in tribal groups of like 30 people. And here we are all of a sudden connecting to 3000 people every single day. And mm-hmm. we're not like we're 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 like we we like conceptually, we've almost like become cyborgs. We have all these ways to augment our function now. Mm-hmm. And I guess as as tool users kind of kind of conceptually, it goes back a long time, but Man, um, you know, like I'm a, I, I learned last year that I'm a suff- I'm, I'm an adult sufferer of ADHD, which thank God I finally figured that out, um, because it, it helped me really put some, uh, let's see, connect some dots together about my life, and figure out how to work out some new tools. But I have all these things that I do now that if if I didn't do them, like I would be a less effective human. I'd be worse at my job, worse at doing this. Um, we are not limited by our mortal shells, you know? And we ought yeah. not let ourselves be limited by it. I, I, I have that that kind of compulsion inside of me. And um, I think we should, like, I see that those, those what did you say that the, the, the creator's name was for the, the VR conversations? Oh, uh, I think it's Surmore or Surmore. Yeah. I should look that up. I'm not going to correct it in post, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, hopefully someone in the comments can correct me, but, um, that is like an example of, um, like, yeah, this is something we should, we should try to figure out. And yeah, it's a big motivation for why I show up to do this. Yeah. Well, number one, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's, that's really, um, you know, thank you for, you know, not only, uh, trusting me, but your community to, to kind of talk about, your experiences like that that's really awesome i'm really happy that you were able to discover something about yourself that you know it's funny that you mentioned that because i have family members like when you're growing up you see people do things or behave in a certain way and it's you know maybe back in the day it's oh that's cousin so and so we don't oh, yeah. talk about he's a little different yeah right and then later on, you're an adult and you realize, oh, this person was struggling with alcoholism yeah. or they, you know, 
had a learning disability or something like yeah or you some get crappy thing happened to them that, that they're not allowed to talk about exactly right and it, number one when you start understanding that there's a lot more to people in the world that you see at first glance mm-hmm. uh, it opens it up in a way and it hopefully allows you to be empathetic to them but also to allows us to kind of reflect inward and kind of look well how can i how can I learn from this or how can I be better? Because yeah, I actually looking back on some of the things that I did or how I behaved or how I treated certain people as a younger individual, mm-hmm. uh, I look back and I'm like, man, why, why was I such a jerk to this person? And why did I do this thing? Or, you know, and then as an adult, I have the ability to learn from it and correct it and even go back and apologize to that person, mm-hmm. right. To get them to understand, Hey, uh, you know, I did a thing that in retrospect, I shouldn't have done that probably made you feel bad. And I want to, you know, do right by it, at least let you know that I'm sorry. Right. And then right. try and go on. And sometimes it's just, it feels good to get it out. And other times you can actually uh, move forward from it. Right. And it's uh-huh. kind of amazing that, you know, our journeys can take us uh, to so many places, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the the story that you shared is really inspiring, you know. So thank you for that. About the the ADHD or about or about the uh, TFC Both. community. Both. Okay. Both. You know yeah. what I mean? Because like you have shown sort of, I I think that is a snapshot that a lot of us in the gaming community uh-huh. can relate to, right? Um, if we've been playing games for a long times that have that social component, you meet people and maybe you develop some of those connections, mm-hmm. but also throughout our journey in life, we can learn something about ourselves that actually causes us to reflect on who we are or things we've done or how we try to improve, right? Mm-hmm. And whether we learn that from the people we encounter or we just learn that through life and then try and apply it so that we can do the things that we, we like and like want mm-hmm. out of life. Uh, the fact that I think, you know, some of the challenges that you had gone through, you said that now that you've identified it, you can actually do things to make yourself better yes. in your daily life or better at your, uh, like interviewing or yeah. just connect. People. Also that, like nice. just kind of justify some things too. Like, like, um, I, I don't know. I, I think most people do. I certainly have had parts of my personality that I feel like I fought against for my whole life. Like this is not a way I should be like, I'm not okay with this way that I am. Being able to understand something as big as ADHD, um, which, you know, is not the biggest thing out there, but big enough, um, has helped me not just treat myself, but also to uh, honor myself in a way. Yeah. Um, like, I, I've, I've realized that a big part of the reason I focus so much on um, uh, language and verbal communication, like what we're doing here, is because... Um, I, I learned the other day that there's this concept about ADHD called uh, not, um, nonverbal working memory, which is essentially the, the idea that that is impaired with most people who suffer from ADHD. And, but usually verbal working memory is fine. So I tend to lean on that, and which is why listing is effective, which is why talking things out is effective. Nice. But if I have to figure out how to get the air conditioners loaded into storage, like God help me. Like, I just can't, I can't think it through in my head. Um, gotcha, yeah. That kind of idea. And the more I learn about myself, the more I learn about the world. And I tend to think that conversations like these 
um, accelerate that process and increase the ability for the connections that are made and the work that that gets done to add add value. And that's it's like a it's kind of a very idealistic way of seeing things, but man, it's like it's why I show up for this. That's just me. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you're doing it. I'm very fortunate that actually that uh, you reached out, and I'm glad we were able to do this. Me too, Bobby. How you feeling? You ready to wrap this up? I think I'm gonna, yeah, I think I'm gonna get something to eat. Definitely. <laughs> and maybe a little bit. Yeah. But this was really great, man. Thank you so much. I had a great time too, Bobby. Thank you. Um, uh, for those who have stuck around, why don't you uh, let folks know where to find you if they want to hear more about uh, what you think and what you're doing? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter. It's just at Bobby Stein, um, and I sometimes lurk around the uh, the Guild Wars forums and whatnot. Sometimes, like you said, I'm on Guild Chat or something. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Don't don't get out and play live music as much as I, I said I was going to talk about bass. So uh, yeah, bass, there's a bunch of things no we didn't get to. We can have a part yeah, time. It's totally fine, but uh, <laughs> I'm just having some fun. Um, yeah, so yeah, catch me on Twitter or whatever. And um, yeah, thank you for having me on. My pleasure. I'm Deeg. This is Basement Side Chats. Thanks, Bobby, and thanks everyone. Have a good night. Take care, man. Have a good one. Too. Hey, thanks, chat. I haven't forgotten about you guys. Thanks, Easy Rocka. Thanks, Mixa. Thanks, Lorenity. Thanks, Darkbringer GW2. Thanks, Danger Moderator Voltage. Thanks, Janorty. Thanks, Melvin Harden. Thanks, The Right Game. Thanks, Maxentius Plays. Thanks, I'm Grimjack for the raid. Thank Mighty Teapot, soliciting the expansion leaks. Sorry, buddy. And thanks, all of y'all who are watching this after the fact.